This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome to another uh, installation of In Class with Dr. Greg Carr. It is uh, a pleasure to be here. Let me thank everybody who's been hanging out in the chat. And uh, we're going to do something a little different today, Dr. Carr. So let me thank you for your graciousness. We're actually inviting, I pick five people off of Twitter to, yeah, to ask questions live. Like they're going to pop up. I haven't used the pop-up thing yet, but we're going to do that. We're going to figure it out. Uh, I love how this is organically coming together. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, I watched LeBron James. I, I went down a rabbit hole on the shop and he had an episode with Stacey Abrams. And she talked about, you know, being a black woman, looking a certain way, being a certain weight and how people told her she couldn't run because of how she looked, you know, even family members. And I think about how we look at ourselves through another person's lens about what we can do and what we can't do based on what people set up in this world. And she said, once I realized, once I told myself, I'm not doing this for me, but I have a set of skills that can help other people. So it doesn't matter if I need to lose 140 pounds, if my hair is natural, if I'm dark skinned, if I show up this way, the work that I do is important. So I thought about that and, and it confirmed what we do here. You know, it's no fancy chirons, no lower thirds, no, no, who's intro that's coming in. It's all sexy and whatever. And the high def screen and perfect lighting. You got a thousand books behind you that it looks like you're, you're in a different place today, which I'm good. We'll, we'll talk about that later. I but I shift the screen a little bit. Ain't nothing too, nothing too much changes in this little room. <laughs> there, there's a, in the comments, somebody said, there once was a door behind the books. That you <laughs> see. Maybe y'all can see see the door over there. Some more, but yes, over there. <laughs> so, uh, so let me just say thank you. I'm going to pop out. Um, but I wanted to start off just sharing because, you know, I'm also reading a lot. And we're going to start this book club in 2021, which I'm excited about. But I'm finishing up the water, the water dancer with Ta-Nehisi Coates and I'm learning words that I didn't know. <laughs> so I thank him for that. No and he uses, he uses them with such color that you can't help but like they're indelibly uh, etched in my soul now. So, but there was this, this passage that I wanted to read um, mm. and, and he writes in these dark days and he's talking about this guy who's in bondage. He calls them the tasked, you know, mm. people who are in bondage and he has to travel somewhere with a, a master and they're on a train. And Ta-Nehisi writes, in these dark days, but there was no nigger car. Why would there be? The quality, which he called the white folk, kept their tasked ones close the way a lady keeps her clutch. Closer even, for this was a time in our history when the most valuable thing a man could own in all of America was another man. And I thought about that because I think in many ways, you know, this is our legacy, being valuable. Yet devalued, being the most important thing, yet not really uh, being made to believe that. And when when I read that, I was like, yeah, why would there be a colors only anything while there was bondage, right? Because you needed to keep your property close to you. And as soon as slavery ended, now you wanted to separate, but you still needed that work. So you still kept us close, just across the railroad tracks. We couldn't go to your schools, but you kept us close enough to be able to do the things that you needed us to do. So I just was thinking about that, and I'm, I wanted to share that this morning. So hello, everybody. Hey, man, that, that's profound. That's profound, Professor Hunter. In fact, 
if it's all right with you, maybe let's let's stay there for a minute. Let's stay in that passage by our, our brilliant brother Tanasi Coates. Let's stay in that passage for a minute. Um why would well you know when we, we were talking earlier about um well earlier this year um about one Saturday I mentioned um repair Catherine Frankie's book on reparations which builds on the long long arc of reparations uh scholarship and and tactical documents I, I kind of can refer to them by those who have been in the field struggling for reparations and one thing she talks about is that the betrayal uh of reconstruction pre-reconstruction civil war in places like uh the so-called port royal experiment in south carolina were um the betrayal of those africans who uh had been told that they would be allowed or some way they would be a first military and then eventually legal protection for them to not only remain on the land that their ancestors their immediate ancestors were buried on who had been captives in the in the death camps and uh they in fact saw that they had a, a quote-unquote right to that betrayal of that promise by selling that property to speculators to landed uh to white folks coming from the north and eventually even transferring a great deal of it back to those who had had them slaved before uh footnote shout out to uh augusta georgia that uh difficult to navigate terrain uh for our ancestors and for the contemporary africans of the region you know the the so-called masters golf tournament is down there shout out to the golden bear jack nicholas that exquisite racist from columbus ohio who uh, endorsed donald trump who i guess uh teed off the masters a couple of days ago through tears sorry golden bear look like your boy lost maybe he's in town for the proud boys rally but at any rate um the masters golf tournament um having gone to a been in augusta georgia a couple of times my good friend Catherine adams at times on the faculty at Payne college uh Payne, by the way uh, along with um paul quinn in dallas paul quinn uh, college and uh one other shorter shorter in um shorter is in arkansas uh those three those, those are three hbcus that are accredited under a christian accrediting group a fourth has been cleared to join them uh to rejoin being fully accredited which means they can now qualify for federal financial aid they never close their doors but with the restoration of accreditation uh they will once again be returned to full status in the Atlanta University Center, although some people like me never took them out of full status in our minds. And that is, of course, the only HBCU in the Atlanta University Center named for an African, the second bishop of the AME Church, and that's Morris Brown. But uh, at any rate, congratulations, Morris Brown. We're glad to have the Wolverines back for full strength. Now we just continue to build that student body there. But um, Payne College, one of the four now in that Christian accreditation group, Payne College is in Augusta, and I went to see my friend Kat Adams down there. She was doing some work and had the faculty down there, those HBCU master teachers, and we were doing some discussion, sharing, comparing notes on curriculum and instruction. And I asked Kat, you know, take me by where they play the masters. I just want to see. And so we drove down John C. Calhoun Boulevard. John C. Calhoun is the intellectual father of the Confederacy. If you ever read his papers and read his philosophies, Calhoun is the guy. And so uh, where they play the Masters in Augusta, Augusta National, sits on John C. Calhoun Drive in, in Augusta, Georgia. Just shout out to them. But um, 
as um and by shout out i mean call you out for the intellectual warfare that we will engage in because we will ultimately triumph over you but as you read that passage from Tanahasi, it made me think about calhoun it made me think about uh segregation and it made me think about the fact that jim crow in many ways america's uh apartheid its formal apartheid system was constructed in a, in, in in some ways that were perhaps unnecessary to reinforce the betrayal of those Africans in South Carolina, in Georgia, in the Sea Islands, not too far from Augusta, Georgia, where those Africans had been promised by the Union Army and that they would be able not only to stay on that land, but to own that land. But, and here's the key, the bridge to walk across, I hope we can stay in this passage for a minute. And wait, the bridge is everything in the water dancer. Yes, the bridge exactly. is everything. The bridge and, is everything everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean the bridge. That's why. That's why James Brown, born right there on the border of South Carolina and Georgia, calls take it to the bridge. You got to have a bridge. <laughs> the bridge is what what puts those the two elements, the rhythm together. Or as uh, you referred to the bridge a couple of weeks ago, the pause. In some ways, the bridge helps you reinstate. I mean, I think about James Brown's song "Pay the Cost to Be the Boss," right? He's got that one little lick that goes through the whole thing. And then he goes to the bridge. After he plays that for a few times, he says, pause, two, three, four. Uh, back to in other words that bridge lets you sit for a minute think about what never pauses which is that beat and then return to the thing that has been stated at the onset but the bridge puts the two things together and lets you know there's always a relationship and what is that bridge that bridge in terms of uh, the exploitation of African people in the modern world here in the United States focusing in particular that bridge, that bridge that we can walk across to see the relationship is the proximity in some ways. Meaning what? To tie it all together. The betrayal during Reconstruction, Civil War and Reconstruction, is followed quickly by a reconciliation between the whites in this country, the capitalists in this country in terms of a class analysis, and the extension of some sense of non-material feeling value, whiteness, to the poor whites to keep them from combining with the poor blacks, something else we'll be getting into today, I suspect. But the bridge is the dispossession of those Africans and the proximity that they still need them, that they still need them in. Because after they tell them they can't own the property, after they tell them, well, you can bid on it just like the rest of these people, and we know you don't have a whole lot of money, in some kind of way, them Negroes still put together enough money to buy a lot of land, but still not nearly as much as they would have had, they then say, however, we do need you to continue basically what you were doing before the war, which is basically, you know, well, we just death camp slavery, but now you're free. So we need you to be wage slaves. We need you to be debt peons. We need you to be sharecroppers. So what we're going to do is, even though you don't own anything around here, we want you to still work the same field that we told you you could own but since you don't own it, we want we will give to you the right to live in a few of these shacks we're going to keep on the property. 
So you can live there. You can work for wages. You can never not be in debt because whatever we pay you is not going to be as much as what we trap you into owing us. But you can't leave. We want we need you. And so when Tallahassee is writing about there not being a segregated car, it's eerily reminiscent to me anyway of Plessy versus Ferguson. When you read in 1896, the not the uh, the majority opinion, which says separate but equal is constitutional, but the dissent, the one that people often hold up as this tiny light that eventually uh, brings the day break in Brown versus Board of Education, the dissent by um, Justice Harlan. Harlan uh, says, oh, by the way, parenthetically, shout out to Samuel Alito, who thinks he can now count to five or six and win everything. So he lost his entire white nationalist mind the other night in the talk at the Federalist Society, where he basically lays out his fantasy game plan about the nature of American society. Shout out, little Sam. We'll see you, brother. We'll see you. But at any rate, back to the point. When uh, Justice Harlan is talking, he, he not only says, you know, uh, this, this question of race has no place in American life. Well, the Constitution is colorblind. That's what he's saying. However, he also asserts that... Um, you know, as far as he's concerned, the white race is superior and it's going to be superior. And there's no need to separate people if that is indeed true. So you don't have to separate these people if we're truly superior. All this does is diminish us. I mean, <laughs> if we're superior, just let it be. So people often mistake desegregation with uh, white attempts to preserve this concept of white superiority. But I think that they often miss the point. The true white supremacist is not intimidated by the presence of other people. The true white supremacist, in fact, kind of thinks that proximity is a good thing because it teaches everybody else just how superior whiteness is, which is one reason I think, finally, that the doll test developed by Kenneth and Mamie Clark, it is fascinating to see and to read in retrospect, some of the analysis of the of the importance and function of that doll test that the Clarks developed with others there, that social science test for the first time in American legal history, you see social science being introduced into legal arguments and kind of blending that. Now, of course, it's commonplace, but you see these black pioneers uh, led by the women and men that Charles Hamilton Houston trained at Howard Law School. So, of course, Spotswood Robinson, Oliver Hill, um, Thurgood Marshall and others who came in, Robert Carter and all of them who argued that case in the ACP uh, Legal Defense Fund. It's interesting that the idea that a doll, that black children preferred a white doll, would be used as the rationale for seating black children next to the white children the doll looks like. So to me, that reinforces, in my mind, the kind of deeper white nationalism, white supremacist thinking of whites who would say, yes, this is the solution like wow so the solution wouldn't be to remove all legal barriers for uh anyone going wherever they want to, to go to school and also supporting those black institutions who would prefer to not have any discrimination by race but also to preserve what is best about what they've learned about moving and being through the world through an engagement with themselves and their history not both of those things no, because clearly the white race is a superior race, so integration must be the solution to your problems. Come with me and, and sit next to me and watch how great I am. And then if you worked hard your whole life 
perhaps you can approximate some of this. I mean, I hope you don't, to, par to paraphrase our friend Lin-Manuel Miranda, I hope you don't throw away your shot. Because uh, after all, I mean, if you, you know, wear my clothes, darken your, you know, a little bit, perhaps you can put on a hip hop musical and to wild acclaim. I, I know you want to be me, so uh, <laughs> let me dress you up like me. But at any rate, why did that passage from the water dancer, Karen, attract you so much? I mean, that that that's a powerful piece for you to excise out the starters today. Yeah, I mean, and I'm far beyond that, but I got fixated on it because, you know, we have been taught our whole natural lives a lie. And many people in this room right now experiencing this class are struggling through, you know, that lens, that gaze of who we are, right? In proximity to whiteness. And I'm trying to understand through these classes myself, how we extricate ourselves from even that. And, and the notion of sitting on a car, like, you know, my mother's from Augusta, Georgia, as you know. Yes. She actually went to Payne College my for one, one year. Uh, and then my father whisked her away up north to, to North. But I think about, you know, growing up with that, the masters in the, in the back background. Yes. Like, yeah. What was that like? Yeah, her brother was a caddy her cousin's caddy, you know, and, and it was a, a de facto Jim Crow type of existence. She grew up with colors only water fountains, you know, and that was normal though. So I'm saying like, it's deeply embedded in our psyche about who we are in juxtaposition to them. To sit on a car with somebody as their property and then fast forward, now there's colors only, I gotta sit in the back of the car you know, or the back of the bus, or I got to drink from this dirty water fountain, dirty looking water fountain, because you have to establish for the world that I'm not as great as you, but I can suckle your babies. I could raise your children. I could cook your food. You trust me to cook your food. How about that? To, look, to go in, the, go in the, when you take a bathroom break at the master's, I got your bag. I'm seeing you in every element of your humanity. In fact, you require me to be here. That's fascinating. So, so I'm saying, like, if this, if these classes do anything, I need a, I need the, this is freedom class, you know, to the nth power. I need us to start to think about ourselves, not, which is why it's so important when you bring in the African, you know, the the language, the glyphs, the the history, because it it allows us to imagine ourselves beyond this and the connection, because that was the other thing in this book, you know, the connection of people who weren't family to have to find family. Cause he talks about Hiram, who's the main character, mm -hmm. who's in all his family. And then he's in up North. I won't give away too much. And then they're like, your family, come on in. It's just the, the natural way in which we have to embrace one another. And I, I need us to do that as well because we will not build a world that we want to live in unless we see one another right. with family. So that's, right. that's, that's what brought it to, to the fore. But we were talking last night um, a little bit because I, I came across this article because the other thing that's a little bit disturbing, you know, like we're not monolithic black people. Nobody's monolithic. We're all we all got fingerprints. So we're individuals. But, you know, we have this, this glorification of things. Again, not true. I was reading this article about Ma Martin Luther King and even Malcolm X. Neither one were very popular during their time that they were living. Among black people. Right. You know, we got this, 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 you know, this romanticizing <laughs> of who these people were, but 70% of people did not like Ma Ma uh, Martin Luther King when he was murdered. 70%, a lot of, but most black people, especially in the South, thought he was 
making life hard for them. And so you, you know, the unpopular freedom fighter, and, and please don't put uh, some people who look like they are thinking about being freedom fighters, but really aren't because they don't have the bandwidth to do that. Right. Like, I, I think people want to, you know, jump on that narrative. But <laughs> you know, I just want us to, you know, kind of divorce ourselves from what we thought we believed and just kind of just be free and open to receiving a different narrative about ourselves and the world that we live in. So that that was what it was. That's uh, you when you were talking and you you were um, good. Thank you. That's uh, because the our journey, our weekly journey, as you say, we we are beginning to see different things. And thank you because your imagination, it's, you know, you kind of apply these moments. So I can't wait to be in conversation with the folks who, who are coming in with us today. Um, but it's like we're, every week we get closer to unveiling that rhythm to apprehensive to really seeing that rhythm like now even the, the conversation is 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 changing some we which is which is what we have to get to this dialogue this conversation this text-based kind of thing and yeah it, it we have you're right and that's really the point i think one of the points in the water dancing you know the, the character of Hiram in particular and the whole notion of being welcome there is a shared set of circumstances that has created this thing that we call black people and it has been for lack of a better term or perhaps this is the best term to get us started it's been common oppression now that common oppression has created a, a shared set of experiences at least shared enough to be able to recognize each other across national boundaries um which is one which is the main but but it has also enabled us to recognize similarities that we share human similarities that have been given further uh that have been strengthened in terms of similarities by a a a, a, a very broad network of shared sensibilities what do i mean by that whether it be music whether it be food whether it be movement dance whether it be governance in terms of how we create societies there are a lot of things that african people wherever we are in the world seem to share now the debate will be from time immemorial since we've been in well the last several centuries through now through whenever in the future as to what is the source of those similarities some people would say it's genetic memory or uh, as my uh my friends Fatima Jackson uh, biological anthropologist at Howard who uh was uh, is the uh leader of the anthropological dimension of the New York African burial ground and helped set up uh, the first DNA bank in Africa. And this is a brilliant sister, the director of the Montague Cobb, Cobb Lab at, at Howard. We recruited her from University of North Carolina. Very important sister. And she often might, she might refer to it as epigenetics. I mean, is this memory in our genes? Is it combined with experiential memory? And I don't mean the experience of the most recent several centuries of this perpetual asymmetrical war on African people as a result of this modern world system, but uh, longer arcs of millennia, of thousands of years, when you see the similarities between the Egyptian in the northeast of Africa and the Akan or the Yoruba in the west or the Congo in the central Africa or the southern Africans as well. I mean, they're not the same people, but there are enough similarities to at least intrigue interest as that are these the results of migration? Is there mouth to ear? Is there written document history that's passed on? I mean, how do you see these things? So that was the source, it seems to me, of why when we, uh, a year ago, when we met, you know, when first conversation we had, uh, when we came up, Ajwa and I came and we had a conversation there in, in the studio with you in New York, was around this curriculum 
that curriculum framework we developed in Philadelphia for these high school students. And that was really the reason why we felt uh, that of the six basic questions we think should be asked in any undertaking of study of Africana experiences, the first questions have to be, who are African people to other people? And we ask that one first because that's the one that frames our entire lives. We're always explaining who we are to other people. But then the second question is the real question. The first question is to get that out of the way. The second question is the one that we see revealed at moments even like this current American election cycle. And we know that, the form, for example, the former president of Mali uh, just made transition to Ray. Uh, also, the former president of Ghana, Jerry Rollins, who I got a chance to meet one time in South Africa, this ebullient, outsized personality, he just made transition. But we know in the United States that the, the Black American has been so consumed by this who we are to other people question, this social structure question, that all our conversations about the election seem to be driven by the assumption that the we thinks one way. And so now we have an opportunity to shift to the second category that we say everyone should always ask this question, who are we to each other? And so what ta is trying to, is revealing and over the arc of his work, and certainly in The Water Dancer, is uh, he's questioning who we are to each other and allowing us through his uh, lens to find ourselves and keep asking that question. So when you talk about Martin King and his unpopularity uh, at the moment of his death, he's come out against the Vietnam War uh, exactly a year from the day he is assassinated. Um, and his, uh, his confidant, his friend, his uh, speechwriter, who helped, in fact, draft that, uh, that, that speech, why, why I opposed the war in Vietnam, the great Vincent Harding, who's written about that, by the way. Um, in fact, Hope and History is, is a good book that Vincent Harding kind of collects a lot of his essays. There is a River was Vincent Harding's version of telling the whole narrative of Africans in the United States. You can pair it with uh, Lerone Bennett Jr.'s Before the Mayflower, both of them. The prose is just gorgeous. I mean, they're great writers. I mean, John Hope Franklin's From Slavery to Freedom, with my friend Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, is in his 10th edition, and it is a solid piece of work for kind of getting the facts and figures and some of the most important people and some of the movement history. But in terms of prose, yeah, Lerone Bennett Jr. and Vincent Harding. But, but Vincent Harding, uh, who writes a little book called Martin Luther King, The Inconvenient Hero. Uh, Vincent Harding talks about the fact that when King comes out against the war, he's gone beyond national boundaries. He's gone beyond the United States. He's talking about now the debt that humans owe to other humans. He's not looking at the world through the lens of somebody else. He's not asking a social structure question, who are we to other people? He's asking, who are we to each other? And beginning with his base, which is a black base, and this is always, this is one of the great ironies of American history. You know, the social structure historians and popular culture uh, folks and mass commercial media folks try to narrate and then we learn that stuff and then repeat that foolishness, narrate this whole notion of black experiences as somehow footnotes in white history. So they want to always make it look like oh, Martin Luther King, you know, the beloved community, he didn't see race, he didn't want, he wanted a colorblind society. Every institution Martin Luther King came out of, with the exceptions of the schools he went to after he graduated from the black one, were black. 
His community was black. His elementary school, his junior high school, his high school was black. His undergraduate was black. He did a detour through a couple of white institutions for the paper and came black to the black church and continued in a black organization, the MIA, continued in another black uh, organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, continued in coalition with other people. But out of his black base, when he critiques Vietnam, he's doing it and he's being prompted, pushed by the young people in his own coalition, you know, Kwame Teresto, the Carl Michael and them SNCC who have come out against the war as a result of what the young people and the elders and the communities that they're working in in Mississippi and Alabama have told them directly. If you look at some of the early anti-war critique, it's coming. If you read the, uh, hmm, that's stacked over here. I'd never be able to pull it out now. The SNCC newspaper is called The Student Voice. Uh, that was the publication of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It's been published. Uh, they reprinted them in one volume, but you can go online. In fact, I'll, I'll refer folks again to uh, the SNCC Legacy Project. You Google that, you'll be able to go in and look at some of the documents. But in that, you see them. They have a, a, a statewide con uh, convention for their freedom schools in Mississippi. And they had freedom schools, of course, 1964 is the year that people kind of focus on. And you see these young people, these Mississippians, who are saying, you know, they have a critique because as they're learning, they're looking at this critique. So when you see Martin King emerge and come out against the war in Vietnam, he's being pushed by those young people that he is in conversation and formation with. He's also being pushed by those Africans he's encountering in places like Chicago and LA when he's going out and saying being nonviolent. And as he says, when you look at that Harding speech that he wrote and that King kind of entered and then inhabited, remixed and became his own. And when he comes out against the war in Vietnam, He's saying, these young people saying to me, you know, how can you tell me to be nonviolent? And they sending my family to Vietnam. And, and so King says, the greatest portrayer of violence in the world is my government. And he says, you know, if there's going to be an autopsy to America, part of that autopsy is going to read Vietnam. So what you then have is a black community. Now we're going to, we're going to, we're, we're going to, well, let me pause there. Let's go back. If we're using this curriculum sensibility. Our first question will be, who is Dr. King to other people? Well, of course, now he's a communist. Or now he's not patriotic. Now, in, in fact, Martin King becomes the Reverend Jeremiah Wright of his moment. People don't, you know, people, we don't, we typically don't think about that. By the way, shout out to Kelly Loeffler, that hard-bitten white supremacist, uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith in Mississippi. If you want to say, if you want to see what Cindy Hyde Smith looked like uh, before she became Cindy Hyde Smith, look at Kelly Loeffler. If you want to see the future of Kelly Loeffler, look at Cindy Hyde Smith, uh, rebels. But anyway, uh, Stacey Abrams going, and all the women and men that help her register voters, they're going to reconstruct the South and transform you. And listen, just underscore too, uh, ironically, uh, Raphael Warnock preaches in the church that once was Martin Luther King's church. Thank you. Thank you. See, this is, see, y'all, this is how we do. Oh, that. He's in that pulpit, isn't he, at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And, of course, I was just going to mention, and I'm glad you did that, because that really is going to allow us to, to walk back across to where King was in 67 and 68 when that when he's when he's seen as being unpopular when by the people who are polled. Right, Ref, Reverend Raphael Warner caught up in this Senate race with Kelly Loeffler, and Loeffler's now running ads trying to, quote-unquote, tie him to Jeremiah Wright, to our friend, to my dear friend and elder, the great Jeremiah Wright. And what is Raphael Warnick? He is not like Barack Obama. In other words, Barack Obama has no problem grabbing any American Negro by the scruff of their neck and throwing them under the bus. He, uh, Reverend Raphael Warnick is in the pulpit. So, of course, not only does he know Jeremiah Wright, they are friends. Jeremiah Wright is 
deeply respected in black theological circles. So, and so he, he said, yeah, I know Jeremiah, right? But now he's got to figure out a way to contort himself to, uh, yeah, I know Jeremiah, right? But you can't, you, you, but you can't, you, you're too intertwined with those governance structure categories to present a different face at this point. So it'll be interesting to see how Warnick plays that. And I need to um, reach out to, uh, to Baba J because I want to, you know, check him. Because I'll tell you right now, the man will never say it. But, you know, that kind of thing hurts you. You know, shout out, Barack. I'm going to read your book after somebody give it to me because I'm not giving you no more money. You don't got all the money you're going to get out of me, bro. Your wife's book, I read her book where she said Jeremiah Wright, bitter, and kind of reminds her of uh, her own father. Jeremiah, Men like Jeremiah Wright and her father, Mr. Robinson, were crafted and shaped by this warped Jim Crow era and segregation. And so some of that is understandable. And I'm like, wow. You're wild. I see you, Michelle. I ain't mad at you because I understand where that comes from. You, that, that's where it doesn't come from. Let, let's let's pause because you know it's personal for you because your relationship with Jeremiah Wright. So I, you know, no question, and, it, and for you too. No, no, it, it it is. You know, but we we've always had to tippy toe. Like when when Barack Obama was elected, you know, a couple of people were mad, you know, for a lot of reasons. And they, they tried to salt him. And, I, you know, you sit here just like leading up to this election. I'm, I didn't go hard against Kamala Harris or Joe Biden because we need them to get elected. But now we have to have the conversations, right. you know, about what it looks like holding people accountable, drawing those deep lines in the sand about what we will not accept and put up with. And we're not going to be quiet just so that people can have an easy ride. So I'm glad that you're bringing this up, that Barack Obama was not a perfect um Perfect, perfect person. He wasn't a perfect president, you know, but he's a politician, which is why I always warn people like politicians will politic. It's what they do. We expect them to be these, these grassroots leaders because he came out of, you know, organizing or whatever. But they're not civil rights activists. They're not they're not building our community. They're politicians. They want to be in power. That's what they do. So they will do anything for for that position. The money, where are they getting it from? All of that needs to be examined. And they have to have a certain narrative to keep making this dollar, right? Yes. So, so the deep pain, talk a little bit about the betrayal because Barack Obama probably wouldn't be president without Jeremiah Wright. Oh, no, he wouldn't. Jeremiah Wright legitimized him in the city of Chicago in a way that nobody else could. That's right. So so let's, let's just spend a minute on that without denigrating Barack Obama or destroying his legacy. No. But I think we should have honest conversations because we're grown. That's right. Well, Karen, you, and so everybody's clear in case it seems like, because I mean, I know folks, you know, everybody's ears are tuned now to the way we kind of begin and have our conversations. Um, there is a theme that's informing this. And let's, everybody don't lose sight of the fact that the theme uh, Professor Hunter introduced with the attitude toward Martin Luther King very shortly before his assassination in black and non-black, meaning really white communities in this country. And so what we're doing now is digging a little bit more deeply into, if we use that curriculum framework, the category, the next category is who are black people to each other? And that's the category we named in the Philadelphia curriculum, governance. In other words, how do we govern ourselves when we're talking about community? So whether it be Martin Luther King in 1967, 68, or whether it be uh, Barack Obama in 2020, as what we, what we what you just said, Karen, is so important. We have to be able to have these nuanced conversations in ways that allow us to advance, even as the we that we're talking about has never 
fully matured into uh, a kind of uh, a kind of identity that we can fully inhabit, distinct from, fully distinct from the demographic category, the category that has been shaped by our common oppression. Which that that that's a difficult thing. And some people might argue, and I and I'm inclined to be kind of closer to this opinion that it was de facto it was enslavement and it was de facto and de jure in other words by 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 practice and by law segregation and apartheid that made this we probably more formidable than post desegregation post legal desegregation has uh, allowed it to continue to be and so 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 the pain I think one of the sources of the pain is is premised in the assumption of the common weak. And so uh, let's compare the King moment and the Obama moment just for a minute. And by the way, this is for purposes of looking at these formations of black folk in our governance structures, trying to relate to each other as we advance a common agenda of liberation. This is not uh, a reduction to a T-shirt to say that Rosa sat so Marcus Walken, so Barack, there is no relationship between Barack Obama as president of the United States and those previous black freedom struggles, unless you've thrown out all of the memory of African people in this hemisphere and reduced everything to uh, horse race, entertainment, sports, politics, individual uh, achievement. And so this, this is not what this is, this comparison between King and Obama. This is a comparison based on some of the internal conversations. So let's go back to King for a second. As you say, Martin King raised the Good Baptist. Martin King's father, Good Baptist. Martin King's grandfather, his mother's father, Good Baptist. Martin King's great-grandfather, his mother's grandfather, Great Baptist. All the preachers in Martin Luther King's line come through his mother, with the exception of his father, who marries into the family business. So, you know, Alberta Williams is very important in this conversation. But they're all good Baptists. And so as good Baptists, Dr. King is a member of the, uh, you know, the uh, National Baptist Convention. And the National Baptist Convention by the 1960s, early 60s, is threatened to be uh, threatened with a split. It's longtime leader since 1953. And he's the leader of the National Baptist Convention until 1983. In fact, he was in charge when I went to my first National Baptist Convention meeting. Uh, out of Nashville, Tennessee, we we took we took the, the church van and drove, and I was in the little pageant, uh, play Aaron in the national pageant. This, this other brother's Moses. They was like, you can't be Moses. Why? Because in the Bible it said Moses can't talk, and so you're the articulate one. So therefore, you you could be Aaron. I'm like, wow, I get to read this role. Yeah, you could be this role. That was directed by Diana Jemison, uh, who is now I think uh, dean at uh, Texas uh, Southern, uh, dean at Honors College. But anyway, her father. T.J. Jemison, Reverend Jemison, was the executive secretary or something like second in charge to Reverend Joseph Jackson, who was the longtime head of the National Baptist Convention and who was, uh, uh, I guess some some people might call characterize him more as the kind of a, a Booker T. Washington kind of uh, approach, which is what, you know, I'm not saying we don't need rights. We all need rights. But he had moved from Mississippi where he was born. He was in charge in Chicago uh, of Olivet Baptist Church. Uh, I think it's the second oldest church black church in chicago the oldest black uh baptist church and the mother church for a number of folk because jackson had a certain way of doing and being in the world that either you were with him or you weren't and he was terrified that king and these cats abernathy and these guys were going to come into the national baptist convention and bring all that protest and all that civil rights stuff and and and, and really expose the conference expose the baptists to the ire 
of these white folks. Now, mind you, Jackson is operating in a city that is very segregated, but also packed with black folk on the south side of Chicago. And so from a, from a base of black strength in his church, the biggest church, and the strength of the National Baptist Convention, he's still, we're still engaged in this governance question in a tousling, an intergenerational struggle over the direction of the uh, 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 of the National Baptist Convention. So you see all this um, correspondence. You see Daddy King. You see Martin Luther King Sr. writing Reverend Jackson and saying, Martin is not going to cause no problems at the... Uh, at the convention, he don't want to be because now they're saying maybe Martin should run. You know, this is the kind of leadership we need. Jackson looking like, nah, this dude not coming for me. And so his father, you know, King's father's like, he don't want that. But by 1961, Kansas City, they mean Kansas City, and you see that Dr. King is, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna run, but you know, uh, Jackson, man, you know, maybe we should run Gardner Taylor or somebody. I mean, a Garden C. Taylor, of course, is a legend with Sammy DeWitt, Proctor, and them guys. These are all young guys at this time. And so what you see is King and them, they get into this whole back and forth. There's a knockdown. Dreddick starting pushing and fighting at the National Baptist Convention. A minister is knocked down, Arthur Wright, uh, from the injuries. He's knocked off the stage. He dies. Then Reverend Jackson comes out and says, Martin Luther King basically killed <laughs> Reverend Wright. Now, this is not Jeremiah Wright. It's Arthur Wright. And then King is like, oh, man, take that back. You know what? We're out. And that's when King and his younger ministers going for the Progressive National Baptist Convention. Now, I didn't know any of this as a 12, 13, 14-year-old getting on a church van. All I know was Cane Avenue Missionary Baptist Church is members of the National Baptist Convention, which is still the convention. But there was a purge of sorts, an intergenerational purge that occurred with Martin Luther King. And the pain, the pain that, uh, you know, I, I, some people might call me a lapsed Baptist. I just call myself an African spiritualist and whatever you say you believe in, we can all believe in it together. We ain't gonna get no argument about that. But if you talk to many people in the Baptist formations or in black church history, just very, they can recite to you that history better than I can because the pain from that is a pain that's born in the governance structure. Who are we to each other? I understand what you got to do with the social structure. I understand when you got to go out there and say certain things and do certain things, but we're at home now come back to Reverend Wright. Jeremiah Wright, and you know, I know Jeremiah Wright a long time. I never got a chance to meet his father who wrote his own autobiography, by the way. I got to copy it over there now, Measure of a Pastor. Um, Jeremiah Wright is, his life story is remarkable and he's working on his memoirs now, which is going to transform a whole lot of conversations because the world will get a chance to glimpse who Jeremiah Wright is. Jeremiah Wright's genius, in part, comes from him applying his prodigious intellect to searching the world for the African presence and bringing it all into conversation with Black folks who don't have the opportunity to do that. And using, for most of his life, in fact, his entire professional life as a minister, uh, using the Bible. So he's able to make those connections. And that's one of the things that uh, drew uh, Barack Obama to him. Again, this isn't, you know, I, I really, when, when I say those kind of things, when I talk about Obama, it's strictly political. I don't know Barack Obama. I shook his hand one time. And that's when he was ironically at a groundbreaking for, uh, I guess it was the theater that uh, Abner John Walker and them were building on the South Side of Chicago. We went out there to the, to the groundbreaking 
And I recognized him because I had read Dreams from My Father. This when he was in the Illinois State Senate. So I said, dude, uh, whose mom is white and his father is African, Kenyan. And uh, he wrote that book after he came out of Harvard Law School, Dreams of My Father. But we were out there because the black community in Chicago supporting this sister in black theater. They were groundbreaking for the new theater uh, uh, building they were building. And so the some of the folks from the Illinois delegation, uh, uh, Amir Jones, some of the people who showed Barack Obama the ropes were there. And I just happened to recognize the dude, shake his hand, keep going. So I don't know Barack Obama. However, when we think about that pain for Jeremiah Wright, and again, you know, you, this is a pain that, oh, go, go ahead. And for the people who don't know, and, and I'm, I'm gonna ask you a question as well. So, you know, Barack Obama was asked to denounce Yes. Reverend Jeremiah Wright when he was running for president. Had he not done that, do you think he would have been president? You know what the safe answer is, we'll never know. If I had to guess, you know, I can't guess. Let me tell you why I say that, Karen. I was there in Philadelphia that day when he gave that speech. Um, I was not inside. You know, I lived in Philly for 17 years, that's my adopted hometown. I was down there on Market Street in front of the National Constitution Center and I watched as the yellow school buses pulled up and off of those buses came all these white children who they bust in to Center City, Philadelphia to sit in this audience while Barack Obama gave this race speech. I knew I wasn't gonna be able to get in. I just wanted to come and bear witness because you know, as an old theater guy, I know what you see on the stage, that ain't even the story. You really want to be backstage. So I knew I couldn't get in, but I'm gonna sit out here and watch this thing as they're assembling it. So I got down there maybe, you know, hour and a half before, and let me just post up, have my coffee, read the paper and just watch. And so I saw how the thing was being staged. And so when he, when he then paired Jeremiah Wright that day in Philadelphia with his grandmother, what Barack Obama was doing was triangulating in a way to say, you know, I know what Barack, I know what Jeremiah Wright has experienced as a black man. And I got a white grandmother, so I know there's some racist white people too. I'm gonna need the young people. I'm gonna need the white people who are not racist or at least will vote for me. And I need all the black people. So I can't really just punch Jeremiah Wright. But see that thing started in Springfield when he announced he was going to run for president, as you know, Karen, as many people know. Um, and Jeremiah Wright was going to give the prayer publicly before, uh, you know, Barack Obama said, I'm running for president. But his team had already identified this potential problem because Jeremiah Wright, in addition to being brilliant and, and utterly committed to the uplift of humanity, beginning with African humanity, the man is characterized as a black nationalist, pan-Africanist, everything, all the things he would embrace. The, the model of the church that Barack Obama and Michelle attended, the church where uh, he was married, the church where Reverend Wright, you know, his children uh, were brought into the congregation, born and brought into the congregation. Jeremiah Wright, you know, Trinity United Church of Christ, you know, they, they said, you know, we're unapologetically black, unashamedly Christian. I mean, that's what we do. And so that race box that Barack Obama was trying to uh, not be defined by was a box he didn't create. But a box he had to navigate, and so you, I, you asked if if he had embraced Reverend Wright, would he be president? If I had to say yes or no, I'd say no, because at that point, then of course, the white nationalist filicide of rhetoric would just be emptied on him, and so we see Raphael Warnock, Warner, who cannot embrace Reverend Wright, and we see Reverend Wright, who's sitting there, will undoubtedly say, "I know why he has to do it," but the governance in the governance space, 
whether there's a Senator Warnock or not, if that turns on it and there ends up being a Senator Warnock, when he sees Jeremiah Wright, they will have they will not have to have a conversation. Reverend Wright just nod and he'll nod. Why? We know. We know. Just like the same way that all of these people who are in this room right now will go to hear Louis Farrakhan speak, but never tell the people on your job. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that you went to see or that you've been to a nation of islam meeting uh, we understand we understand and so but 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 the pain the pain comes from the record in part i think the recognition of having to do that in fact let me just make a, another quick comparison and we'll continue in this in this in this vein because you, you when you set out with martin Luther king it's very important i think that ties to even what's going on here in dc and what happened before king and all this um you know, I was watching something the other day, a conversation. Uh, yeah, last night there was one conversation between uh, Shannon Sharp uh, and uh, not Shannon Sharp, Sterling Sharp, right? Sterling's the one no. on the show. Shannon, Shannon is the one. Yeah, Shannon. I put them South Carolina boys together. Yeah. Where did Georgia South Carolina put them together because they're brothers. Right? Think about me and my brother. Everybody be switching us up. So yeah, I was watching Shannon Sharp talking to Isaiah Thomas. Yes. Did you see that? Yes. Tell everybody, please, Karen, about that for a minute. Oh, my God. So, I mean, but you first have to watch the whole Jordan <laughs> series, right? You have to watch that. The Last Dance, yes. Where Jordan demonizes Isaiah Thomas, uh, in my opinion, you know. Sure. Um, and, and so Shannon asked him about it. And basically, Isaiah was like, I never knew he felt that way about me, which I'm going to call BS on that. You um, already know. So no, but it was it was a fascinating conversation when you think about Isaiah Thomas at that time, his diminutive self being so much of a champion. And he said, Jordan wasn't my competition. I didn't think about him like that. Right. Which I was like, oh, he's so nasty and shady, but nasty. He wrong. But he wasn't wrong though. <laughs> Do we have an affinity towards Isaiah? Do you have an affinity towards him? Are you I have an affinity toward everybody if I could just see the humanity in them. That's that's what gets me in trouble. You know I love Isaiah Thomas and I love Michael Jordan and I look just like I love any black person when they are black. It, like, for example, The Last Dance, that was a social structure uh, narrative. In other words, that was who Michael Jordan is to white people. Let's just be very clear about that. However, because he is black, because he comes out of black communities, you can't ever scrub out the blackness. So black people are vibing on the blackness, meaning what? The shade, the back and forth. Probably for me, two two examples from the from the uh, the last dance will frame it perfectly. It seems to me. And this is from somebody. You know, I read David Halberstam's book on Michael Jordan, and uh, was it Playing for Keeps? And uh, of course, the Jordan Rules, all the sports books. I mean, here I say, but that's who he is. Other people watching. And there are a lot of examples of the governance structure. Black people are to each other. The whole episode on Pippin, as Pippin grew up and his family oh, and all that, that's, that's governance structure. Right? Y'all don't really, don't, you, you can try to build a bridge to it, but you'll never really get it. But two examples very quickly. Steve Kerr and his father, the story about how Kerr, you know, his father was president of the university, American University of Beirut, who was, of course, assassinated in Beirut. Uh, and Steve Kerr talking about that, that's very touching for me as a human being who had a father, who met my father be killed. And, but then remember, they opened that conversation with Kerr by saying, you know, because because remember, the whole series is basically about Michael Jackson. as a, uh, Michael yeah. Jackson. Well, yeah, you could say Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, Mike Tyson, any Mike that entertains white folk. The conversation is about who you are. Back to your original point. What is your value to us? You're a ball player. 
So let's talk about the ball player. But in, to spend that much time, you got to get the human being in. So, of course, the conversation opens with, can you trust Steve Kerr to take the jump shot? Because the whole frame and narrative is these championships, right? But in order to get Steve Kerr in it, you talk about Steve Kerr, Steve Kerr's family and his father. And a lot of people don't know about that tragedy or that connection between the Kerrs, uh, Malcolm Kerr, the father, and then Steve Kerr, the son. But to get to that point of entry, the question is asked, uh, did you and Michael ever talk about your fathers? Because Michael Jordan, of course, father was killed. And he said, no, pause. And if this were, you know, if I was in a regular classroom, we show this clip, well, actually we are in a classroom. So let's apply our first two categories of our Philadelphia curriculum. The social structure question, who are Africans to other people? Did you, uh, you ever talk to Mike about your fathers? No, meaning what? Jordan didn't talk to him about his father and Kerr didn't talk to him about his father. Why? Black folk, I, we work together. Now, can you take this jump shot? I watch you, you replace jump passing. Okay, that's good. The governance question, who are black people to each other? Remember the brother, the retired cop, who becomes Michael J Jordan's father figure after his father passed. That's a glimpse at the governance structure. In other words, when you saw that brother's wife saying, Mike will call here, middle of the night crying, Mm -hmm. My husband will get up and go to him. When he got sick, Mike noticed it first. He called me and said, take him to the doctor. And then, I mean, in other words, see what you see there? I'm looking at Jordan like, see, this ain't number 23 for the Bulls or number 45 for the Bulls. This ain't North Carolina hitting the jump shot, winning jump shot as a sophomore and going, see all that stuff's for the sports reporters and ESPN. No, this right here, this is black people right here. This is the governance question. You see that relationship? And so when Isaiah, a native of Chicago, comes in, and you had that whole thing back and forth between the Pistons and the Bulls, which, of course, fires the imagination of, among others, Jalen Rose. I mean, you got to be black or you got to understand that's a governance relationship you're looking in now. Y'all take them jerseys off and insert this conversation between black people. But when I was watching that sharp um, Thomas conversation, the thing that made me pause was when they had this conversation about why Isaiah Thomas went to play for the University of Indiana, for Indiana University in Bloomington and Bobby Knight. Mm. And when Isaiah Thomas told Shannon Sharp, I mean, Sterling Sharp, uh, Shannon Sharp, told Shannon Sharp, hey man, he came to visit us in Chicago. All my visits had to be in the daytime because the lights had been cut off. And I'm looking at the roach behind the wall as he's talking like, get out, get out. So it's me, my brothers and sisters, my mom, and Bobby Knight sitting there saying, you know, Miss Thomas, I promise you, you know, uh, your son will graduate from college. Uh, your son will get uh, uh, everything I know about basketball. He's going to know. And he, so he says, she's, he's saying that. He's went, but then, he, then Isaiah says, my oldest brother asked him, hey, man, are y'all going to protect my brother, why? Because the Klan, the second rise of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915 in Atlanta and in Indiana and the neighboring town over from where Indiana University is, is the birth reap of the, is the birthplace for the rebirth of the Klan. And Isaiah's telling Sharp this today saying, you know, the Klan had activity and the Klan still has activity. In other words, I ain't stupid. Boy. I'm from Southside Chicago. I know. So my brother, my oldest brother asked him and then Bobby Knight's response was, Hey, if we're winning, 
they will. And he said, they were laughing. He said, his brother didn't think it was funny. His brother then said, they got into an argument and then the argument escalated. And finally, his oldest brother said, hey man, he started rolling up his sleeves. Hey, we can take this outside. And then Bobby Knight got up, took his jacket off, said, yo, we can take it outside. He said, and we all like, oh, wait, no, wait. He said, the only person didn't move was his mom. And his mom looking at Bobby Knight. And then it occurred to Isaiah. Isaiah said, she likes this man. And he said, then Isaiah says to, 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 uh, to Shannon Sharp, he said, uh, you know how it was back then. You didn't choose where to go to school. Your mother and father chose where to go to school. So if you remember my announcement, my mother said, my son has chosen to go to Indiana University. And I'm sitting there next to her like this. <laughs> and of course, my mama picked. But that's then here's, here's where it comes to. Here's the governance issue. Because that's part of the governance. But here comes the thing. Sharp, unprompted, says, was your father alive? Isaiah says, he was alive. But he wasn't there. And then Sharp says, talking to the social structure now. I want people to know that because I want you to explain, you know, why wasn't your father there? And then the social structure gets a glimpse into the governance structure because Isaiah then says, well, you know, during that time, you know, my, my father would have been there, but basically uh, we had to go on welfare. And you know, the rules of welfare are if you got the man in the house, you don't get the same benefits. He says, so this policy basically broke up black families. And so my father couldn't be there. And then Shark comes in, he said, so if it was like your house, like my house, if your father's not in there, the oldest brother assumes the role of the father. And Isaiah said, that's exactly what happened. That's why he tested him with that. And then he started talking about that. And then they, then, then they started talking about poverty. And then, <laughs> oh my God, Karen, when they got in this conversation where they started talking about, and, then, and Isaiah was like, because we were poor. We had nothing. The lights were off. We had to have the meeting during the daytime. And then Shannon Sharp was like, yeah, man. And you know, you you were the youngest. So you got all the hand-me-downs two or three times. He said, yeah, man. And he said, I couldn't fit my brother's clothes. So, and then Sharp finished the sentence. He said, so you had your sister's clothes. And he said, yeah. And then, uh, and then Shannon Sharp said, dude, the same thing happened to me. Isaiah asked him, so you know about buttoning up on the left-hand side, huh? He said, yeah, man. And he started talking about, this is a governance structure question. Now I got friends who say, well, it's a class issue, of course, and everyone poor knows that. Okay, give it a rest. I understand the intersectional stuff. I also understand the intersectionality has never explained to me. I'm like, I'm like uh, Adolf Reed on this. At which point do which of these identities become your identity? Is it all relational dynamic? So let's just set aside the class thing for a minute. If you have been black and poor or no black people who are poor and you came from a big family and had to wear out clothes till they fell off, you know something about having to button up on the left-hand side because that's what fit that came from the thrift store or that's what got handed down to you. And when Isaiah Thomas narrated his graduation or his moving up from junior high school outfit for the ceremony, I was in tears. He said, I had my sister's black patent leather boots on. I had her, <laughs> and Shannon, you know, you know, Shannon Sharp can't do nothing but that. You see all them TVs like, yeah, yeah. And I'm saying, what y'all seeing right now? See, what y'all seeing right now is the humanity of black people. So when Barack Obama, in this coming up memoir, which I will read, of course, with Michelle Obama in Becoming, in a social structure writing, in other words, this is white facing. This is for the people to talk, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I don't know where it's ghostwriter, her collaboration, whatever. 
when you talk about Jeremiah Wright and your father as having been shaped by this clear racist society, but that's why you sympathize with them, you're not talking about what Shannon Sharp and Isaiah Thomas were talking about. And so the love that, you know, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going, I don't criticize Michelle Obama or any politician because she a politician too, not, not elected office, not yet. Anyway, God only knows what happens in the future, but we understand those are social structure conversations. And unless we draw a bright line between those categories, at least for the, uh, for the purpose of thinking through what this we means and how we advance, we confuse these conversations and that just intensifies and exacerbates the pain. Because I've seen people critique Jeremiah Wright. I've seen black people critique Jeremiah Wright who know better, but they too are trying to curry favor in this social structure. So I give them all the pass too. And I'm just grateful that in spaces like this, in fact, in not even like there's no space like this, in this space, we're able to have enter a nuanced conversation. And it's why I teach at a at HBCU. One which, by the way, now allows us, again, coming back to Dr. King and what happened at the National Baptist Convention, and also what precedes that in terms of connecting it to these marches that go on. The space I work in teaching anyway every day is a space where the class the unvoiced class fractures in our community are difficult to navigate and so let, let me say that let me say this very quickly and then we, we continue because again this you, you really unearthed the whole thing yesterday with me Karen you really sent me into a whole other place um Martin King's unpopularity near the end of his life, I'm convinced, is, is a result of a number of things. One is white mass media and public opinion in terms of the social structure. When you're looking at the governance structure, who we are to each other, a lot of that's being driven by black mass public opinion, which is riven with class issues. So that black elite, that black middle class, post Brown versus Board of Education, that sees perhaps through deseg desegregation a point of entry into American society and even some desires, some cultivated desires that may not be shared by these by the vast majority of black people in the country who are not part of the middle class or the black elites. That sensibility raises the stakes in that tiny group. So for them, an individual making an advancement in white society and politics and sports and becomes a proxy for the rest of the group. So anybody trying to widen that and bring everybody along, the black elite want that because they want what's good for black people. However, they don't want it at the expense of their hard fought for recognition in, in the outer circle of that proximity. In fact, that's one of the reasons I wore this shirt today. I, I take this shirt to each every time I go. Son of a field, Negro. <laughs> in other words, you know, and, 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 and I you know, I love Malcolm, of course. Malcolm X, incredible. What Malcolm did our people a deep, nah, I started to say Malcolm did our people a deep disservice, but his genius, his ability to use metaphor, house Negroes field, Negroes chicken coming home to roost, all that stuff. If you misstate it a little bit, 
it becomes indelible, a bit fixed in our mind. So there really isn't a hard distinction between house Negroes and field Negroes in terms of resistance and all this kind of thing. But the metaphor of field Negro is usually means somebody who is 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 not in the black elite or the black middle class. Now, you know, compared to my colleagues who are at these uh, fancy white institutions, I'm not in the black elite or black middle class. However, compared in the black community when you don't have anything, people would say, yeah, well, you're in the black middle class. Yeah, but the problem is, or the challenge is, we have to be able to engage in a class critique when it's just us. And that class critique is the source of, one of the sources of King, Martin, Abernathy, Shuttlesworth, you cats, y'all get ready to mess this up for those of us. So you can't come in here with all that noise. Go back 20 years. Oh my God, yeah, 1961 is where they had to fight in Kansas City. Go back 20 years and it's A. Philip Randolph. A. Philip Randolph, who is not the first person to say, let's march on Washington. You're going to go back maybe about seven or eight years, is it by then, to the bonus march, the bonus army. That's when those World War I veterans who didn't get the bonus they were promised by the United States government came to Washington for the bonus. And it was interracial. There were some black people there, black veterans. And the United States government weaponized the army and put them out. General Patton was out there. He wasn't a general then. He was a lieutenant. I want to say, I think he was up under uh, Dwight Eisenhower. But anyway, they pushed those veterans. They forced them off the National Mall, tore down their encampments, all this kind of thing. So, so, so um, uh, Marshall, I'm sorry. Randolph wasn't the first person to propose a march on Washington. And I'll keep this very short so we continue. Um, but but A. Philip Randolph from Jacksonville, Florida, A. Philip Randolph, who in 1925 had organized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, chambermaids, uh, the men and wives and women who worked, who were on the Pullman rail cars into the first black union in this country, a. Philip Randolph, who was an open socialist, who J. Edgar Hoover called the most dangerous Negro in America. A. Philip Randolph, whose wife owned beauty parlors in Chicago, which is what enabled her to finance her husband's early organizing work until he got off the ground, at which point Hoover and them put the murder mouth on her in terms of saying she was a communist and don't go to her stores and try to turn black public opinion and try to put her out of business. A. Philip Randolph, through organizing, understood, and this is something invaluable for us in 2020, there's a distinction between organizing and mobilizing. A lot of folks now with social media and saying register to vote and this kind of thing, they're mobilizing. You're mobilizing means I'm organizing people around a certain action I want them to take. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm mobilizing them. Organizing is the long, hard work of sitting with people one-on-one, one-on-thirty, two on two, however, and saying, what is your life like? What do you need to improve your life? How can we help you? How can us being together help? And of course, unionizing was one of the, in fact, the central organizational logic of Philip Randolph and many others as they came forth. So by 1941, Black people, America's getting into World War II and supporting some of these European countries that are getting into the war. And there are many jobs. This is, this is what brings, of course, we know the United States out of depression fully is World War II. And so what you then see is black people not getting the jobs because Jim Crow. You can't work at this fact. Yeah, but there's, there's no 
You don't even have enough people. I want no, nigga, no, you're not coming into this job. So Randolph begins organizing what becomes the MOWM, the March on Washington Movement. At first, he says, we're going to bring 10,000 people to Washington, D.C. We're going to force Roosevelt to integrate these jobs and integrate the military. Then he says, nah, I think we could probably get 100,000 people. Why is he saying that? Because he has organized labor with him. And organized labor, I'm talking about women and men who are black people who are organized around the country and who are saying, we need those jobs. What else do we need, Phil? And in a minute, we'll talk about that in this book, which I pulled. This is going to be this is going to be great today. We won't take a lot. I know people are coming to, to have conversation. Um, they end up calling the march off after they've organized all these people. And as a woman uh, um, who is very important, Anna Hegeman, uh, this is a very important figure. She's the executive secretary of the organization that becomes the March on Washington movement. They call it off. And Roosevelt, if they have they, they meet with Roosevelt because first Roosevelt sends his people. Randolph and them are like, nah, we ain't there. Then they say, you know, Frank, I think you just need to meet with Randolph. So Roosevelt and his team meets with the March on Washington movement. People put April and Randolph off front. Rayford Logan was at that meeting. Anna Hegeman was at that meeting. Fast forward for 30 seconds. Anna Hegeman ends up being the only woman on the planning committee for the 1963 March on Washington, in part because she's always there with uh, A. Philip Randolph. In fact, when they get the Fair Employment Practices Committee, Randolph and them come together and they name Anna Hedgeman working out of New York to be the head of the Make the Fair Employment Practices Committee permanent. So Hedgeman's in the meeting with Randolph, with, with Roosevelt and them. And Roosevelt finally says, okay, if y'all don't march, okay, I'm gonna sign this executive order. He signs executive order 8802, which integrates jobs in military-related industry. And that's how a bunch of Negroes ended up in Seattle and in the Bay Area, in L.A., in Detroit, in Cleveland, in Akron. I mean, because that's when the jobs in the wartime factories opened up. And Detroit, for example. And so what you see then is Randolph, they don't stop the March on Washington movement. That March on Washington movement then organizes. 1942, they organize a paid staff, paid organization. They've got like 26 chapters all over the country. And they continue up until 1946 because they say the issues we're raising are issues we have to address. But the class piece, this is where I'll end and then we can continue this conversation for now in terms of this piece, the 40s piece. What Randolph is anchoring this is in, in is this. Yes, integration is important. Yes, killing Jim Crow is important. Yes, legal strategies are important. But the vast majority of black people in this country who do the living and dying, and all, they're not going to college they're not running for office these black people are trying to get jobs they need decent wages these black people uh need health care they need good solid places to live so our agenda is grounded in the day-to-day -day contact we see with these black people in these communities and we can't come into a room negotiating for three negroes to get appointed on our blue ribbon committee and one negro congressman no we say our agenda is anchored in uplift of everyone. And that class tension is so powerful that it drives the movement. Really, it all has always driven the movement, but the movement makes most its most progress when the vast majority of our people, of that we, that's difficult to describe, are organized so that in moments of inflection, we can assert our mass organized strength to advance. And for Randolph, 
in this country, as he writes in this book, What the Negro Wants, which was published in 1944, Randolph, along with others, said, I'm a socialist, meaning what? I think a, a socialist, I'm not a communist, and this is an important distinction. Socialism is the idea in many ways that the resources in a country should be controlled by the people who live in the country, but it doesn't mean that you can't have a, a democratic society or even a free market. You should, the state, the state should uh, manage the resources that are produced in private industry, that are produced in terms of the ability to, to, to produce goods and services. They should manage it in a way so that everyone in the country can achieve a basic level of well-being. Healthcare, for example, Medicare for all, that ain't nothing. I mean, Social Security and Medicaid, Medicare, that is, that would be considered a kind of a soft socialist kind of thing, democratic socialist, really. Communism, however, uh, by contrast, this is a very broad contrast, obviously. I mean, you know, you got scholars who wrote written libraries on the distinctions, and they still would all get together and say, we can't agree. But communism broadly is the sense that, yes, the workers, the people in the society should get according to what they uh, need and everyone should be taken care of, and there shouldn't be any private industry. The state should control any of the apparatus of the means of production, and the state controls all of it on behalf of everyone of the people so there is there has not been a pure communist society in this in the world china is not one never was cuba is not one never was vietnam is not one never was because there's never been the complete erasure of private industry but socialism isn't even going for that oh by the way communism often says and it can't be achieved by making peace with these uh, with the ruling class or the bourgeois or the petty bourgeois. That's the people who are recruited in to the class status, even though they don't really have everything. That's what E. Franklin Frazier, by the way, would call the black people. Y'all petty bourgeois. In other words, y'all really don't run nothing, but they let you in the room to be on the committee. So therefore you get to flex in, in, in ebony or wherever. But at any rate, the communists would say it's all driven by class conflict. You got to organize these, uh, these people in the lower classes and they got to overthrow those people. Some just like, well, no, 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 I think you can get there by reform. If everybody has the right to vote, for example, and you organize people uh, by their collective interest, if the unions are coming in, then you can put people in office who will help redistribute, tax the wealthy to a degree, and then turn around and say, okay, everybody can go to college uh, with the money we've taken. I don't like this word free, because ain't none of it free, because socialists would say, didn't you work? Yeah. Did you pay taxes? Yeah. Okay. Did you produce something? Yeah. Do you own stock in the company? No. That means the person who's telling you they ain't going to pay for your free college made all their money off your labor. So you need to elect somebody to take some of that money that's based on your work and give it back to you so it's not free college. You done paid for it already. Health care, college, housing. And so in elections, you're a socialist. Okay. And I shouldn't keep mocking uh, white people who talk that way. Why not? Well, so well, because 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 it's so much larger than that. In fact, let me mock a Negro on television. These people are these Bernie bros are socialists. <laughs> so anyway, so but the point is, and that's not a big up on Bernie Sanders either. Because see, what happens is we because we're not looking at the past and not studying these things, we often listen with the ears like we're watching ESPN or we're watching a sporting event. Oh, it's Bernie versus take the names off. Could you take the names off and look at the underlying principles? Ella Baker would say, Pauli Murray, who was a student 
and, and April of Randolph recruited Parley Murray and them because after the March on Washington was called off in 41, the young people kept going. 1943, Parley Murray and her classmates at Howard stayed sit-ins, and April of Randolph paid for her to go, I think it was to Detroit, when they when they put together the National Negro Labor Congress and all this kind of thing. They're saying, yeah, no, no, you, this is this is complicated, and you can't reduce this to personalities clashing. There are principles. Which one of y'all wants to be able to look at your child and say, you can go to school for as long as you want. And I paid for it, not with my wages, but with the wealth that I that was generated off my work. Uh, I want that. Okay. Which one of y'all, when you get sick, want to be able to the doctor and not have a bill? Uh, I want that, but that's free. Medicare. No, don't you work? Yeah. What do you do? Well, uh, I work at the call. I work at UPS. Really? Okay. You deliver packages. You got stock in UPS? <laughs> Shit, I wish I did. No, because your labor is what makes the stock valuable. So you're not getting free health care. You done paid for it. We're just going to tax UPS. By the way, one of the people in the coalition of unions that supported the March on Washington movement in 41 and came back and helped organize the 63, because Randolph brought his whole team into 63, it was him and that group, the National Negro Labor Congress, the American Negro Labor Congress, that really organized the March on Washington in 63, which we'll talk about in a second, because I'm going to stop with this for real and we can make it Um. UPS, the black people who were working in the predecessors of UPS were part of that labor configuration. So when people say, well, you're a socialist, I mean, yeah, socialism's pretty good. Socialism doesn't mean you can't be a capitalist. I know y'all want to make all the money in the world and you believe that lie that everybody can make all the money in the world. Fine. Socialism doesn't cancel elections. In fact, it requires you to organize to put people in office who will be able to expand that scope. But if you think that Everybody having a floor where they can be human in the world and, and, and not be at risk is a problem. You should put your hand up. And very few people will do that. But anyway, let me pause here because I know this price. Let me pause too. Um, I just want to, uh, the, the field Negro and I, I know where you were going with Malcolm X, but I just wanted to underscore getting back to ta Coates where yes. he talks about people in the house being under more scrutiny, people in the field having more freedom to be their full selves. And I thought that that was interesting because we've grown up with those juxtapositions and you think that the people in the house are hardy and they're, you know, because they get a little bit more, but they also get a, a lot more scrutiny. That's where most of the rapes happen. That's where most of the, the brutality happened because when, you know, as ta writes in Water Dancer, when they get a little liquor in them, uh, that's when the savage savagery comes out. And who are they gonna be most savage to? The people closest to them in the house. So I just wanna say, you know, that, division done through allegory, done through analogy, built a wedge between us that didn't need to be there because we're all suffering under the yoke of bondage. Uh, we, we're talking today because there's a March on Washington. Right. Uh, allegedly. 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 Uh, out your window, can you see, you know what I mean? Like, are they there? Are they in? You, you, you know, part of me wants to go down there because I was down there the other day. By the way, apparently, you probably saw it, Trump, uh, wave to them this morning on his way to Northern Virginia in his golf course. I'm talking talk about insults. Jesus. I mean, and how long? I mean, what did it take him? Like uh, 72 hours to go from uh, gold to, to gray in terms of hair? Wow, that's that's quick, right? I mean, <laughs> so that must be a spray on. Uh, you know, old, the, the tan and everything is just one, one, uh, just hold just one, one can. Just do yeah. that. <laughs> that, and, that would be a great cartoon. But he left, he's in Northern Virginia. That's what they said this morning. So uh, the different, isn't it crazy, Karen? Now, black people did not invent the March on Washington. Like I said, the Bonus Army came before Philip Randolph. 
But the Randolph model, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't even say the Philip Randolph model. Um, there's a good book, uh, Garfinkel, Herbert Garfinkel wrote a book called When Negroes March. That was the first treatment of the, um, the March on Washington movement in the 1940s, 1940. And then David Lecander, who was, uh, got his PhD at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, the American States program up there, uh, he published a book called uh, Winning the War for Democracy. Uh, that book came out probably, I don't know, four or five years ago. But the first one on it was um, was uh, Garfinkel's book, the When Negroes March. And also, they, there are many biographies of Mayfield and Randolph, but Anna Hegeman, this sister, very important. Uh, Anna Hegeman uh, wrote two memoirs in her life and her papers, I forget where her papers are, but y'all can look that up, H-E-D, H-E-D-G-E-M-A-N, uh, -E -E had to spell it out in my mind. But at any rate, uh, yeah, there's a march today, and they call it the Million MAGA March. I'm saying, okay, Randolph and the March on Washington movement, these women and men, there's a whole lot of women, particularly in St. Louis, like Mary Bethune, they were all in the March on Washington movement. They give you the template. You come back 22 years later for the 63 March, which begins, and the reason it's a march for jobs and justice is because it is organized labor that has driven the whole agenda. In fact, Roy Wilkinson and MACP, Whitney Young and them early, they don't come in until just before the march because they realize they can't stop it. Malcolm is right about this. And I'm going to talk about Malcolm too on the way to the, to the MAGA piece. What you see then is King and them are in there. And so what they immediately do is say, okay, let's organize now. We're good. Randolph and them was like, Bayard Rustin, his man. It was his lieutenant from a long time. Bayard Rustin is like, no, we got this. We all good. We're going to, we come in anyway. When they realize they can't stop it, that's when the Kennedy administration, the AFL-CIO, where Randolph was the first vice president, black vice president of AFL-CIO. But once he gets in, they start beefing. And then at one point, it was George Meany asked uh, Randolph, well, you who made you the leader of all the Negroes in the United States? And Randolph had, had helped you. So then they get to like the American Negro Labor Congress. And I think which was, I think it was the American, it was a national labor, national Negro Labor Congress. That's where Coleman Young and them, they come from the 1950s. Coleman Young and these guys, they're accusing, this is during the Cold War too. So the white people in the social structure are accusing them of being communists. So they got Coleman Young, who eventually becomes the mayor of Detroit. But before that, he becomes a state senator in Michigan. And before that, he's in organized labor. I want to say he was in the garment field. Like he was in, he was in clothing and he rises in organized labor. All these streams culminate in 63 because it's black labor that's pushing the march because between 41 and 63, you've got um, these assaults on race and apartheid. Like I said, you got Ella Jo Baker, who's organizing with organized labor and stuff, who ends up on the civil rights side with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She comes out of NAACP to that. You've got, as I said, Polly Murray in them. You've got E.D. Nixon for Pullman Porter with the Brotherhood, who's in Montgomery. He's the one who helps get Martin Luther King in a position to lead the Montgomery Improvement Association. Edgar D. Nixon. In fact, there hasn't been a good book on Nixon. I did pull this Nixon book. Uh, Freedom is never free. That's the guy I should show at least a couple of books. A biography, biographical portrait of Edgar Daniel Nixon Sr., who only made transition in 1987, by the way. It's the thing about when they kill black people, the ones who keep living often live into this moment. So, but all these are labor cats. So it's very important to understand. And so what you see then is between 41 and 63, you've got this, um, this formation driven by radical politics so if you're talking about centrists or radicals now because people watching tv without any knowledge of what that means looking at people like you picking sides in a shirts versus skin ball game throw out of the way and look at the concepts 
So these are not quote unquote moderates. They're radicals. Even young people, the first SNCC, the Southern Negro Youth Conference, which goes back to the 1930s with its partner, the National Negro Congress. By 1946, you've got W.E.B. Du Bois in this mix. Du Bois goes to Benedict College in South Carolina and in the chapel gives a talk, Behold the Land, where he says the future of the American Negro is in the South. All this radical movement is informed by organized labor, by organizing. So by 63, that's what's pushing them into Washington because you've seen this incremental reform, these concessions that some scholars would say came as a result of the Cold War came as a result of the United States not being, you can't be ashamed in the world. You try to expand your empire, so you can't really be out here trashing black people. So you open up with desegregation, a pathway for the black elites and the black middle class. And then the black masses are like, yeah, we want that too. And that's why we got in this in the beginning. So then you keep pushing. And so by 63, the momentum is back for another march, except this time we coming. Why? Because what's on the table? The Civil Rights Act of 1964. And with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you can expand voting rights. You're looking at the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. You really want this suite of rights and these concessions and Randolph and them the, are driving this. Now, that's not, this is now within the governance question, that's not uncomplicated. First of all, as they're sketching it out, there are no women who's supposed to be speaking. So Anna Hedgeman is like, hold on, Chief, I'm running the show. And you're telling me ain't gonna be no women? Well, uh, so she writes this memo where she's like, y'all treating us like white people. We ain't got no, we're the backbone too. Oh, no. So they say, okay, fine. Uh, uh, Meg Everett's wife can speak. She's stuck in traffic. Daisy Bates ends up speaking. Um, Josephine Baker, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, ends up speaking. Still problematic. Because again, now again, we, we're not looking at this like this comic books. It's not like superheroes, all good, all bad. Even the comics don't do that. So, but by 63, now they're at the March on Washington. They've been joined by these other elements. And they tell, for example, they tell the young people, SNCC got a speech. They tell John Lewis, look, man, this stuff about the masses and all that, that kind of sounds like communism. A. Philip Randolph defends them and says, well, I use that language. You know, I go back to J. Edgar Hoover, yo. I know about surveillance. And, I, and there's a whole nother conversation about all these organizations, because the feds are trying to say, you got, you've been infiltrated. And they're they trying to purge people. Oh, then, uh, was it Whitney Young? No, it was Roy Wilkins. Uh, you know, uh, you can't have Bayard uh, uh, Rustin uh, managing this whole thing. I mean, he's homosexual. Randolph's like, you wasn't even here till this morning. Now you coming in, no problem. I am the director of the March on Washington, right? Yes. Okay. I'm naming B.R. Rustin my deputy director. <laughs> so anyway, so I mean, but all this stuff is internal. Roy Wilkins, who now, you know, I, I don't get the feeling that had I met Roy Wilkins, I would have liked him. I mean, I know what Kwame Ture, I know what Stoney Carmichael said about him, and even what he wrote about him in Ready for Revolution, which which I think would probably be my position, too. I don't throw no Africans away. So, you know, Baba Kwame, Brother Kwame would say, you know, I didn't agree with Roy Wilkins on damn near anything, but I believe he loved black people. I love black people, so that's about the best I can do. But Wilkins always coming in late with shade and late with some mess. You know what I'm saying? Now, that go back to Walter White versus April Rand. I was holding that story. But by 63, now, the march gets pulled off. They get SNCC to edit their speech so they don't basically say, we're going to march through. Oh, SNCC said this in the original draft. This uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, it's not enough. It's not enough. So we're not going to endorse. Whoa, wait a minute. The young people, okay, Black Lives Matter, 
go back to 1963. SNCC was like, they ain't endorsing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Fast forward to 2020. Ain't you glad they got a Civil Rights Act in 1964? Yeah, and there's a whole lot of reasons to be. Again, we're talking about life as it is, not life as you are theorizing it. And SNCC had a better position to critique the Civil Rights Act of 1964 than a lot of the YouTubers in 2020 have critiquing whether or not people are going to vote or not. Why? These cats got skin in the game. Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, they got skin in the game. Vernon Dahmer, they got skin in the game. Aaron Henry, they got skin in the game. The whole Southern freedom movement. So when they say they're not going to do it, they got a they got a point. But then they sent A. Philip Randolph in, and Randolph says to John Lewis, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. Don't, you know, that's a governance structure question. And them youngsters, John Lewis, Julian Bond and them, take that line, write, rewrite that line, write that out, and go ahead with the march. Meanwhile, Malcolm comes down from New York. Malcolm holding court in the same hotel where King and them staying. Talking about it's a farce. Black clowns and white clowns and the white people couldn't stop it so they joined it and they watered it down. Malcolm, who's friends with Adam Clayton Powell, who's also seizing. Well, I'm the only educated, I'm the only elected Negro in America. How in the hell y'all don't have me leading the whole damn thing? Again, what you've seen in 2020, this ain't new. <laughs> this is not new. Go back and Malcolm a black nationalist critique of the march on Washington is not wrong in terms of the social structure's ability to reach into black internal politics and interfere in a way that keeps it from just overwhelming the system if that's possible in that moment. But Malcolm's critique hardens into a lens that in 2020 people still using as if they've taken time to study the politics, to study the dynamics and Malcolm is a very important figure in this because in some ways this becomes the black nationalist critique of this attempt to convene black collective power for group progress. And these things should be debated, they should be discussed, but ultimately what we find ourselves in, in this moment kind of trapped in in some ways is these oversimplified narratives that end up with the March on Washington. Some people in this room right now finally will be like, I didn't know any of that. Right, because they freeze Martin Luther King on those steps with I Have a Dream, not even the whole speech, just like they freeze Fannie Lou Hamer in 1964, testifying before the Democratic National Committee. Every black person gets frozen in the place the social structure needs them to keep the social structure in place. When you go into the governance thing, you realize that Martin King at that moment is beginning to turn toward a more broad concept of this black freedom struggle towards an internationalism of sorts and he has to be frozen with i have a dream because i have a dream is used by the social structure to freeze us into this american nationalism american liberalism but four short years later dr king is like nah this country this country don't have to be here in fact america you keep it up God will allow another country to rise up and break the backbone of your power. Now you didn't scared the black bourgeois. <laughs> you didn't scared the black elite. You didn't scared all the Negroes that run the black newspapers, including the one that tried to body A. Philip Randolph years before that, the Pittsburgh Courier, where Scholar and them is like, this dude is crazy. Y'all, everybody need to relax. This, is, this, this, this has happened before. And so who is shaping those opinion polls? I don't know. Who printed them? Well, the New York Times and uh, okay, well, we can discount that. 
Uh, what about the black papers? Well, the Chicago Defender, the Washington, the Pittsburgh Courier. Okay, we, we can maybe discount some of that because I don't know how this survey research is being uh, constructed. And I know that there are people who have something to lose who mm-hmm. might say that about King. But we can't all be sure when you say black people, just like, oh, black men voted for Trump more than black women. I don't, I don't doubt that. What I do, however, question is how any of you know any of this. I know, I, let me exit polls. I got friends who are master statisticians and they would tell me, yeah, there's, there are all kind of vagaries in that, that are baked into that. But, um, but the question then of the marches from 63, after 63, that's the template. Every march been there. The big anti-war march, 67. Then you come forward into the 80s, the marches that come through and the anti-apartheid stuff, the Martin Luther King birthday stuff. And then, of course, the Nation of Islam, the Million Man March. And so these white racists who help, who hate non-white people, five of them supposed to be in D.C. today in front of the house where the dude they rallying for left to play golf this morning. And uh, they're calling it the Million Maga March. So uh, good luck on your fake Million Man March, Million Woman March, Million Families March. Shout out to Dorothy Height, the National Council of Negro Women, because they used to do a Million Families March. And now y'all come with the Million Market March. Y'all can't even be original. Stop biting on black people. Go on and wave your red hats and go on home and take this ale. Well, and they have some help here. They have nothing without us. And, you nothing. know, the reason why we're convening um, today and every Saturday uh, and beyond yes. is because, you know, we've talked about this before, the fall of, of, of Rome, the fall of this country, you know. Uh, what you just said about Martin Luther King, where he told Harry Belafonte, I fear that I've integrated my people into a burning house. The house is on fire. Let it burn, right? Let it burn. <laughs> the roof is on fire. The so, roof is on fire. Yes, we don't need no water. Um, what, is, what does that mean for Black people? You know, like if, if or the country has fallen, right? We, we have a, a sitting president who won't give up his position. Uh, we have people convening uh, onto D.C. who are fighting within 71 million Americans. 71 million Americans cast a vote to keep this status quo, which means it's not over. And Biden and Harris are not going to be magical saviors. Nope. Georgia, if you get them two senators, that will help uh, black-handed, black-hearted uh, Mitch McConnell from not completely running a, a Boston, right? Well, maybe. Maybe I, I, I wouldn't trust. I wouldn't trust. I wouldn't trust Joe Manchin as far as I could throw. Oh, okay. In other words, 50-50 ain't 50-50 If you pay attention to, and I know you do. For those who are looking, okay, we got forty-nine Democrats or forty-eight Democrats and two independents that caucus with the Democrats, right? The guy in Maine, Angus King, and Bernie Sanders. Okay, okay, we're good. Y'all counting Joe Manchin? Yeah, he's Democrat. <laughs> you better go look at his voting record. What about Mark Kelly in Arizona? He's a Democrat. Yeah, he's running for re-election in two years. And y'all know uh, Democrat, uh, Democrats haven't had two senators, Democrat senators in Arizona since the 50s. That's very cold water territory. Yes, the demographics are changing. And two years from now, it should be better. But at the same time, the, the Republicans aren't sitting quietly, at least on that. They're thinking, okay, please, Trump, go start your TV network. Because we know all, this is all about you don't want to go to jail and you're trying to monetize and get paid after you get out of the office. This ain't about staying in power. I mean, bag me the back of your fantasy mind because you won't be president first. Act. Please start your... But if you tell people you're running in 2024 just so you can keep the buzz up and keep these rubes that's coming to D.C. 
they got a dollar in their bank account and they getting ready to give you 95 cents of it. If you're trying to keep all of them, you're also going to freeze Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio, because you because they know they can't come out against you and get your racist people at the same time. I don't know whether they racist or not. Cotton, I say, yeah, you probably racist. Rubio, you just a naked political opportunist. We seen two weak. Man, you the same cat that'll be out there on the corner trying to figure out how to move uh, move some marijuana that you didn't mixed up with cut grass because you couldn't even get the good stuff from it. You the guy everybody tell, get off the corner. Anyway, the point, but we all know that none of you can be the nominee for the Republicans if Donald Trump says he running because these people loyal to him. Because he said the thing that before him, y'all used to try to have euphemisms for. But he done blown your dog whistle game. He out here, ooh, ooh, so you came down. If he's in, you got to out him him. So Ted Cruz, I arrest y'all. My point is this. When you now see in this moment we're in now, thinking through what we want, we are faced with, Republicans is clear, this is going to be a mess. The Democrats, and that went, went, oh, let me pause here. This is not an endorsement of Republicans, Democrats, and any political party. It is Black people talking about what we face in this country and in this world in a larger context, in basically a duopoly, a political duopoly in this society. And you've made the point many times, the independent politics. We're thinking about that. The March on Washington movement is independent politics. The Southern Negro Youth Conference is independent politics. SNCC, SCLC is independent politics. The Democratic Party was the point of entry because it was the point of power at that point. When the white nationalists moved from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, the Democratic Party then is the kind of Trojan horse or the stalking horse that people are riding into a position to negotiate. And that's if you look at democratic socialism or socialism as a good lane that doesn't mean that the socialists aren't racist as well because again going all the way back to where we started whether it be the sensibility of abraham lincoln or the sensibility of justice harlan the idea is yes i don't think we should be mistreating black people some of that comes from because we're superior to them so why would you elevate them to some point that you got to worry about no let them come with us they will eventually come toward us why because after all we are the ones that created everything shakespeare and mozart all that foolishness is informing even the liberal stuff. So people say, well, what about maternity, uh, black maternity uh, 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 rates and morbidity rates and uh, and not having access to healthcare in Georgia? And the response from some of the white quote unquote progressives is, well, Medicare for all will solve that too. Okay, there you go obscuring race again. So that's not letting them off the hook. What I'm saying is that this politics is informed by years of thinking, organizing, working, so that when you see a Stacey Abrams registering people to vote, it isn't just about uh, mobilizing in terms of a vote. That mobilizing is preceded by organizing the tradition of getting people into local power, into building that momentum, and then adding the vote as one more tool in the advance of power, in the acquisition of power. So let, let me end with this. Where do we go and what do we want? I think one of the great things about us being together like this is it gives us a chance to at least put out there the things that will benefit us in terms of thinking through what we want. How do we recognize patterns? What happened the last time we demanded this or the last time we organized for this or the last time we pushed for this? It also allows us to see new strategies after we've identified the patterns. This worked, but we're in 2020 now, so we need to add this. 
Now, if they had had social media during the 1941 March on Washington movement, would it have been better? Would it have been worse? That's a legitimate question. I don't know the answer to that question because somebody sending a Facebook post or a tweet might think they've organized. You ain't done nothing. Somebody watch that. Then they switch to the one with the cat where Paula Dean said, in other words, <laughs> so you, haven't, you didn't go to nobody's house. <laughs> you didn't sit with them. You didn't eat out the same pot of pinto beans to talk about how you need a Blackwell said when them organizers came in the Mississippi, then white kids came in there and said, come on in. We got a big pot of beans. You sit down too. In other words, you ain't do none of that, Bob Moses saying. Snick organizer come in, you start bouncing the ball. The kids want to play ball with you. Then the ball run under the porch. You walk over to get the ball, and that's when you meet their parents. In other words, you didn't do none of that. You sent a tweet out. Hashtag. No, nah, that ain't organized. Which is why Nkichi Taifa, Sister Nkichi, in her book, uh, her book Black Power, Black Lawyer, she just did a review of uh, some of the Black Lives Matter stuff that's coming out. And she said, this is a, this is a governance question. This is loving analysis, not really critique as such, although it's critical, it's in love. I don't understand how any movement that's talking about revolutionary love and joy and organizing and learning from the past could cherry pick out a couple of quotes here and there and skip over the Black Freedom Movement. Skip over, you know, George Jackson, the Soledad brothers, skip through the political prisoners who are still there. And that's certainly not true of all of the various Black Lives Matter formations. Not true at all. But what she's saying is that without a deeper knowledge of where we've been, we risk repeating the mistakes that we've made in the past. We we lose the momentum by gaining off of that. And we also find ourselves without a playbook. We're making we're constantly making up a new playbook. So here's an old playbook. This is from 19, and it's been republished in paperback. So y'all can find this. In fact, you go to Sankofa, you tell Sankofa.com. Go over there, tell them, get it for you. 1944, University of North Carolina Press. It's 1944. This is a book called, we talked about it uh, last week, What the Negro Wants. Rayford Logan was a professor at Howard University. Rayford Logan was in the room with Roosevelt when they negotiated and then eventually came to Executive Order 8802. So he was in there with uh, Hegeman and Randolph and them. They were all in the room. He picks these people to write essays on what Black people want. You see the first name, Mary McLeod Bethune, Sterling A. Brown, Professor of Literature at Howard, W.E.B. Du Bois. That Du Bois chapter, oh my God. Gordon B. Hancock. Gordon Hancock came, he was a leading professor at Virginia Union University. Gordon Blaine Hancock, one of the most important thinkers and organizers of the 20th century. And I guarantee you there's two or three people who never heard that name. Just Including me. Never well, well, all of us. I mean, no. Gordon Hancock. Who is he? Gordon Hancock was part. Remember, Karen, you sent me. Which we, when we Did we, uh, by the way, thank you. Y'all saw the Wilmington. If you haven't seen it, please go back and look at that. Thank you for putting it up, Karen. We talked about that a while ago. It was months ago. It was months ago. People were like, oh, a new class. I was like, no, I'm saving this for the anniversary. Saving it, right? Did we we do the one on the Durham Manifesto yet? No, we did not. Let's do that. Because Gordon Blaine Hancock had to do with the Durham Manifesto. This is, in fact, he writes about it in What the Negro Wants. This is, I mean, Leslie Pinkney Hill was at Cheney University. Uh, Frederick Patterson, A. Philip Randolph, George Schuyler, Charles Harris Wesley. Doxy Wilkerson, who was an open communist, he was on the faculty of Howard, and then he finally just left. He said, I got to go ahead and organize. Roy Wilkins isn't here. What, what, Ray, this is, let me tell you this quick story. This is quick. This book, the University of North Carolina Press, 
asked Rayford Logan. No, they they asked, we need a book to find out what do black people want? We need a book like this. Critical difference between then and now. Everybody in this book, just about everybody in this book is in black institutional formations, organizers, academics, people working in black political formations. Fast forward to 2020. White fragility. How to be anti-racist. Whoa, wait, what just happened? <laughs> it's, not, it's not, it's not about you. People saying, yeah, we're making progress. Okay, Aries Vice said, oh, wait, this is a new era. Yeah, no, nah, it ain't a no new era. A white publisher asked black people, what do you Negro want? What do you Negroes want? So they say, who should edit this? They get Rayford Logan, distinguished scholar, friend of Carter Woodson, very important brother. Logan says, I got you. I'm going to get 14 people. I need four moderates. In fact, let me just let him say it. Let me just let him say it. Because he writes the editor's preface. He says, 14 Negroes who have devoted many years of study to America's most difficult and intricate minority problem have here presented their views within the framework of their own belief. He didn't even try to get them to agree with each other. He asked them to do it. He said, the editor's role has been minor. He selected the contributors, four of whom might be called conservatives, five liberals, and five radicals. He said, what does the Negro want? And let me stop with this, because I know we got people waiting to come in. I can't wait for them to come in. The publisher's introduction is written by this racist uh, W.T. Council. In fact, uh, W.T. Couch, W.T. Couch, who was the, who was the uh, editor of the press. He basically says, yeah, you can learn a lot of stuff from this book, but you know, I'm of a mind. He says there are three different ways to approach the Negro in America. He says, do you think they're inferior and there's nothing you can do about it? It's genetic. And he says, you know, they never did anything in Africa, this kind of thing. Do you think they're inferior, but they could be brought up to us in a certain way? Or do you think the problem is white people? He said, I'm the second. I'm in the second category. I think they're inferior, but they could be brought up in a certain way. He's like, I'm like Abraham Lincoln. And he's, he quotes Lincoln basically having the same position. He says, so I don't really agree with most of this stuff, but y'all go ahead and read it. Every chapter, they're laying it out. Ray Logan, what the Negro needs is equal citizenship. I put a little marker in here, and y'all can read this. You can pause it for yourselves and see. This is his list. Lord, I can't see. <laughs> there's his list. He's got a list that's very basic, six points. I mean, there's no way to summarize this book. Maybe this is a book we should look at. Du Bois, this chapter that Du Bois writes, this is one of the best chapters and Du Bois's hundreds of thousands of pages of writing. It's called My Evolving Program for Negro Freedom, W.E.B. Du Bois. He starts with, he's, he's graduated from Fisk. He's at Harvard. He's sitting on a, on a car in Cambridge, on the way to Cambridge with a white dude. And he asked the white dude, um, what, so what you going to study? So the white dude says, there's nothing which I am particularly interested in. Du Bois said, I was more than astonished. I was almost outraged to meet any human being of the mature age of 22 who did not have his life all planned before him, at least in general outline, and who was not supremely, if not desperately, interested in what he planned to do. He said, I had to pause. He said, wait, now forgive him. He young. I'm black. I don't have that luxury. <laughs> so Du Bois, du Bois then goes through his entire life, his early youth, he then says the enlargement at Harvard and Berlin. He then goes through prelude to practice, his black studies program at 
Atlanta University, the first, the hundred year plan. These, he said, every ten years we're gonna study something different, and then at, at mm. year eleven we're going back to the first one: mortality among Negroes in cities. He said, eighteen ninety six. So in nineteen oh six, we coming back to this and see how much progress we made. He said, after a hundred years, we would have attacked and eliminated all these problems. This is what Du Bois was doing. He planned it all out. You understand? Why did we follow this? Because well, yeah. follow yeah. it or not, why don't we even know? So we can say, hmm, hmm, hmm. This is this is what happens when you turn over your education of your children to other people in the social structure. Because this ain't interesting to them. It's not necessary. The closing and opening decades, he talks about when he turned toward reading Soviet Union stuff and Marxism. He says this is when he changed his stuff out of Atlanta. The second readaption of his program, he says, when he gets involved in Africa and Pan-Africanism. The third modification of his program, when he travels to Germany and Soviet Union. And then he gets to my present program. He says, I didn't stay in the same place I was. You ask me what the Negro wants, I'm going to walk you through my studies of the Negro for 60 years. And then he concludes with, this is what I found out. This is what I think we should have. He said, please be very clear what I mean. He says, we need, I said right quick, by freedom for Negroes, I meant and still mean full economic, political, and social equality with American citizens in thought, expression, and action with no discrimination based on race or color. Then he says, I know what y'all thinking. Let me focus in on social for a minute because y'all don't know what I mean. By social, I mean private social intercourse, marriage, friendships, home entertainment. He said there should be no restrictions on anybody, including the people that say, I want to build black institutions. That was wrong with y'all. But he said, I, I know what white people going to do. Y'all, oh, that means y'all want to marry. I, I, no, I want to lock my house. I want Breonna Taylor and her boyfriend, Walker, to be able to go to sleep. In fact, I want them to own the house instead of being in a damn apartment complex because she don't even make enough as an EMT. And based on what they doing, see, I want full economic equality so they can build black Louisville. Don't, 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 I ain't trying to marry your daughter. He even says that. Anyway, this is the whole thing, wow. right? But let me end with this one, though. Let me end where we started, because Doxy Wilkerson, Townsend's pieces. Let's go with A. Philip Randolph, and this is our close here. A. Philip Randolph puts the whole March on Washington movement document in his chapter. And this thing walks through the aims of the Negro. Then he goes after the aims of the Negro. Darker races must fight for freedom, he says. Then he goes and says, free Africa. It's 1946. Then he says, not a war for freedom. He said, this ain't no war for freedom, World War II. He said, it is a war to maintain old imperialistic systems. It is a war to continue white supremacy, the theory of the Herrenvolk, and the subjugation, domination, and exploitation of peoples of color. He said, he said cause of freedom in retreat. People think they're coming up with something new in 2020. Uh, racial capitalism and that I didn't know. Nah, uh -uh. Go back and read what the Negro wants and you can pick the playbook you had. Look at what happened since 46 and say, okay, now what adjustments do we need to make? In fact, maybe we just need to spend a whole session on just what the Negro wants. But that's that's the prelude, I think, to where we have to start. We have to look at what we've done. That's really what Sankofa means. And I think we, we should take that one chapter. As you were talking, I wrote down, can we do a version of that in 2020? And why do a version of that? Why just why don't we just take that Du Bois chapter, break it down, and maybe have 14 people speak on that? And like who would be a contemporary of, of A. Philip Randolph and Du Bois today? Like who's even in that position? And what where where did Du Bois and A. Philip Randolph 
fall in line with conservatives, liberals, or radicals in that book? Where was Du Bois? Was he a radical or was he a liberal? Du Bois is going to be, it, well, that's the other thing. Council says, I don't even know what categories are what. And Logan doesn't say. He just says he picked the distribution. What Couch says, W.T. Couch, not Council. I'm thinking about it, somebody else, William Council. What W.T. Couch says is, you know, they all kind of read similar to me. It seems like these black people all want the same thing. That's their social structure looking in. So that would be an interesting exercise. I would I would tend to put Du Bois with the radicals. Put him with Doxy Wilkerson. Uh, Schuyler, maybe with the conservatives, although Schuyler brings in race in a very... Oh, by the way, they're writing this only a couple of years after Gunnar Murdahl's American Dilemma came out. People in 2020 still go back and read Gunnar Murdahl. I'm like, no, y'all need to read the response to Murdahl, because a lot of these cats, Sterling Brown, uh, Du Bois, actually wrote, did research and wrote documents that 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 that, uh, that American Dilemma used. Um, but a lot has happened since 46. So we ask who would be Du Bois today? Du Bois is fractured into many scholars, with the distinction being most of those scholars are now academics, meaning what? They don't have any, most of them don't have any real connection to organizing. Or in some of them who do, they don't They don't outnumber the ones who don't. Uh, a. Philip Randolph, Randolph was the labor guy. So we would have to look, I mean, you look at somebody like Bill Spriggs or Bill Lucy or the people who had organized labor. You look at the women and men of organized labor, the black ones who have fanned out throughout the country, who helped put this, the, the boots on the ground to deal with the question of registering people to vote, who are now faced with an invasion of the Democratic Leadership Conference and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and them going to come into Florida, uh, Georgia with all the, and they're and they going to be like these people who came in at the end of the march on Washington. We think we should do this. Uh-uh. Nah, chiefs. Nah, I know it's important for you to get two Senate seats, but y'all ain't put no money into Mississippi to help Mike Espy until the last minute, and you ran that cutout against Mitch McConnell instead of Charles Booker. We know who y'all are. So again, this ain't Democrats or Republicans. If you read the stuff, if we study the stuff, we know we've seen this show before. We know what happens when a movement of organized people who are not part of the bourgeois class, I don't say bourgeois, who are not part of the upper class elite of any color, we know what happens when those people start organizing. Once they get enough momentum, those other people realize, oh, shit, oh we got to join them. And then, But then by then, it's usually too late. And that's what's going to happen in Georgia over this next month. These people are going to come in from the Democratic Party trying to dictate how to do this. And those people in Georgia are going to be like, hey, we'll take money from you. But what you're not going to do is uh, tell us how to do what we're doing. Because we've been doing this. You, what, what you think we started doing this in, in, in August? You talk to Latosha Brown them as you do. I mean, you talk, you think we just started doing I, I've been in this damn bus for, over, for a couple of years. And before that, everybody who we stopped in these little places we've been going to, they've been organizing in their community for decades. So if you think TV ads are going to win this, go talk to Jamie Harrison. Y'all stop calling No, we know how to do this. Now, if you want to give us some money to help, fine. But we know what we're doing. And I think that's why it would be good to start with Du Bois because that gives us a chance to see Du Bois in a snapshot. But oh, there are people waiting on us, ain't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as this class takes shape and curriculum comes, yes. um, this is also a model for how you build things. You know, yes. the pyramid didn't start at the top. You started okay. with the first layer and it first started with, you know, for this pyramid with community. We had to have enough people to be able to, to know that they wanted this 
this is the thing you never knew you wanted till you got it, which I appreciate. A lot of folk are like, where has this been all my life? Well, <laughs> it required, you know, having a genius, pointing to him, uh, a genius. Uh, this is a genius. You know, we wouldn't be on here except for that sister right there. Y'all know what it is. <laughs> They you know, know what it is, Ken. <laughs> this is uh, this is important. This is important because yes. we're gonna. I'm like tired of the 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 stops. I'm of the interrupted. You know, as you said, they, we had a 400 year interruption and a 50 year, 60 year interruption. We keep getting interrupted on our way to freedom, and uh, enough already. So um um, we're gonna conduct our way on up out of here. Uh, just another reference to the uh, yes. water dance. All right, let's get some. Um, let's get some callers. Um. I did something purely organic. I went on Twitter yesterday and was like, uh, I'm going to pick five people, you know, jump in uh, my DMs. Uh, and then a couple of people smart enough to say, follow me, which I did, you know. Yes. And then they were able to DM me uh, and I took the first five. Not everybody's here. So next week, you know, we'll do the same thing. So if you're not following Dr. Carr on Twitter, go to Africana Carr. Yeah, or follow me. At I got to get back in this. Yeah, yeah that's all right. Uh, at Karen Hunter on Twitter. Yeah. I'll, I'll invite some folk in. I'm going to go with the first person that jumped in first. I'm going to add him to the stream. I've never done this before. I'm just trying to figure out how we can get the, the interaction without me reading, you know, questions from, and I'll do some questions read uh, as well, but let's welcome Kevin in. Kevin is from Kansas, uh, no, Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, now he's in Little Rock, Arkansas. Let me bounce him in there. Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Kev. Are you muted? Right? You gotta muted. unmute yourself. Okay, you y'all hear me now? Yes. Yeah, hey, uh, what's up, brother? Not much, not much. Happy to be on with you all today. Miss Karen, you know, I love you. You almost messed up right there because with somebody from KC, you always gotta know whether they're from Missouri or from Kansas side. I'm from the Missouri side, but yes, right. yeah, you, you must gotta go make sure that. you said Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, sir, Dr. Carr. Hey, brother um, Kevin, I haven't been out there in a minute, man. Greg Collins, my people at uh in Buff, Kansas City. Mm -hmm. I was out there every time I come to your hometown, man. I make I said, please take me down 18th and Vine. I gotta go to the Negro League Baseball Museum. Yes, 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 yes. They they've done a lot of amazing things in that area, and, and hopefully they'll keep doing it and not let it be gentrified. And but that's oh. a whole nother, that's a whole nother conversation. And just no, I saw I saw the sister who uh who 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 brought all the smoke. Was that a Kansas, was that a city council meeting? It went viral. Mm -hmm. yes, oh, yes, okay. sir. yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Um one of the things I want to ask about is, um, I'm, a, I'm a big Marcus Garvey oh, person. Yeah. That's, that's, that is my dude. And yes. I, one of the things I really appreciate about him is his whole concept like, hey, we're in this together. At the end of the day, we need to understand that ain't nobody going to have our backs more than we have our own backs. So we need to come on the same page, like y'all talked about earlier, hold each other accountable, yet at the same time, be mindful enough to move forward together in a cohesive unit. What are some of the tips that you would, you know, tell somebody like, okay, look, you, you spoke on it earlier about holding these politicians accountable, whether they look like us or whether they don't, okay? Um, because people are going to do what you allow to do. Yes. That's what politicians and any any person in general. How can we, as as a people, hold these politicians accountable? Say, okay, we did, we put you in office. We're going to follow you on social media. We're gonna we're gonna go on your website. We're gonna look, read the newspapers and everything else to make sure that you know what you're supposed to. And if not, then you, your two years are coming up. Your four years are coming up. We're going to vote you out. And at the same time, we have to deal with people saying, well, why are you trying to hold the black, you know, what would you suggest on how to, you know, properly address this, this, this situation? 
Well, well let me thank you first, uh, Kev, for basically giving us the playbook for how we should use that moment of electoral politics in terms of what happens in the booth. You just laid it out. We're monitoring, we're in your face, we're organized, we're constantly in front of you, around you, we're forcing you into conversations in our community. And if you do not do what we have extracted from you in terms of not only promises, but the policy that form, we will vote you out. And I'm glad, and you also laid it out perfectly in terms of the rhythm of how we engage in that tactic of voting. Uh, it's every 24 months, as you say, it's every two years, every two years, every four years for a president, but every two years, the third of the Senate is replaced. We're talking about federal politics and local elections, you mm -hmm. know, sometimes yearly. So, so you already laid it out. That's number one. Um, number two, yeah, I I consider myself a Garveyite. And there are a lot of Garveyites. Well, there's some and not a lot. In fact, because when I say I consider myself a Garveyite, um, you know, you and I folks, you know, Redmond Battles. I never met Thomas mm -hmm. Harvey, who was the president general, but I lived in Philly for a number of years. So I knew a lot of those old heads who are now ancestors, uh, who, were, uh, who were in that, in that generation who knew Marcus Garvey. Uh, his son, his living son, uh, Julius, of course, fighting for, pardon for his, uh, his father right now. You know, I'm joined that fight. So I joined that fight. You know I me. Mean? So we understand that. The thing about Garvey, I think, for me, uh, well, I, let me not, let me take for me out. The thing about Garvey is the Garvey movement is so complicated mm -hmm. and it's so nuanced that, for example, uh oh, what happened? Is Kevin? Okay. The the uh, for example, and I keep I keep Garvey stuff around. There are fourteen volumes of thirteen of the Garvey papers. I got them all, but the ones that I keep closest to me are the ones that were edited by my man, my dear friend and brother. The ancestor now, the late Tony Martin. And I raise it in the context of A. Philip Randolph. Uh, I would suggest not only his history to Garvey movement, race first, to help us understand, but if you got to pick one Garvey, this Marcus Garvey message to the people, the course of African philosophy, the new Marcus Garvey library, Tony Martin, these used to be kind of harder to find. But now, if you go to www.sankofa.com, Sankofa has all of the Garvey. Uh, books that were published by Tony Martin. And these are primary documents. But there's a, there's two other ones I want to mention as it relates finally to, to, to your question and, and what, should, what we should do and how to tie Garvey in. Literary Garveyism is one, the Black Arts Movement and Garvey, uh, and African fundamentalism, a literary and cultural analogy of Garvey's Harlem Renaissance. Uh, again, Sankofa has all these. Garvey had an internationalist view, as we know. So black people, wherever we are in the world, have to cooperate. That's something we should always be aware of. So the domestic affairs, for example, we haven't talked much about foreign policy in the democratic agenda. The democratic agenda in this country at the federal level especially is not going to be different than the Republican agenda in terms of its attitudes toward Africa and other places. They may do a little bit more soft power, so to speak, but it's basically an imperialist agenda. That's gotta be smashed. So, so Garvey's internationalism and black nationalism, pan-Africanism has to be at the center of all of our work. Um, and sometimes that looks like local uh, polities, uh, say cities, for example, doing business with African uh, countries, doing business with African people. That's possible. And of course, we see it happen in Chicago. You know, you look, I mean, you look at different places where people can at the city council level, at the uh, district level in your neighborhood can begin to organize to make connections to strengthen relationships between black people internationally. So that's number one. I only mentioned a couple of others. Um, we also have to be very aware of the ways that uh, 
we were used against each other uh, during the Garvey movement. For example, we keep talking about A. Philip Randolph. A. Philip Randolph was a critic of Marcus Garvey and Randolph and Du Bois and them got pulled into this Garvey must go campaign. Because again, Garvey was uh, an immigrant to the United States from Jamaica and they eventually deport him. That's how they get him out on this trumped up federal charge that he should never have been laced with. But what you see is division among the blacks and Garvey had a very strong critique of this black bourgeoisie. At the same time, Garvey himself, while advocating and creating models for black political structure and authority, many of those models, even though Africa was placed at the center politically, culturally reinscribed Europe. So Garveyism is a very complicated kind of uh, complicated kind of conversation. And if we study Garveyism and Garvey more more specifically, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, and understand how that organization worked, what worked well, what didn't work well, we can then say as Garveyites, as Garveyites, we can draw strength and draw instruction from improving, whether it be international business and international business relationships to how we deal with white nationalism and white supremacy. People talk about what Garvey meant with the Klan. Sit down and read through what that meant and what it didn't mean, what that entailed and what it didn't entail. And so uh, black nationalism without Pan-Africanism looks like white nationalism and blackface. In other words, you know, the idea we're Americans and so we're owed this and we have to do this and if not that, we're not voting. Okay, that's presuming that there is an America and there is not. That is presuming that there's a black organizational base that is completely reliant on the relationship with the social structure we were drug into. And that doesn't have to be true either. And finally, that cuts us off from the international freedom struggle, the international human rights struggle, the international pan-Africanist struggle for liberation that we have seen through history has been the thing that world imperialism is terrified of because that type of thing renegotiates the terms of the entire system we find ourselves in. And while the United States may look like a country that's not attached to the rest of the world, the, no, it is absolutely at the center of an international nexus of finance capital, of white nationalism, and of all of the, to use the word from another context, intersectional oppressions that conspire to keep human beings from attaining our full human potential. And so Garveyism teaches us that connections are what strengthen our ability to do whatever we want and need to do locally. Now, those are just some of the lessons from Garveyism, very broadly put, but that's something we need to continue to explore. I appreciate you, brother. Myself back. Okay. Uh, thank you. Hey, hey, hey. And, and thanks, <laughs> thank you for shouting out saying Kofa, you know, um, after this, I usually spend about 30 minutes going, looking, finding the books. And a lot of the books have been, uh, of course, out of print. And they, you know, Amazon will sell them for like a thousand dollars. And people are like, I'm not spending a thousand dollars on a book, and you should not. No, you should not. Um, and one of the things in discovering that you and I have talked about is how can we make sure that these out of print books uh, that people have access to them. So we're we're working to do that because these these are things I didn't know uh, we needed again until we start to, to put these pressure points out there. So Sankofa, we're going to drop the link in the description. Of course, uh, subscribe if you're not subscribed. 
And, oh, and then, oh, did I tell you congratulations? Did it happen? It, it happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it did. It happened. It happened. 100,000. Yeah, 100,000 happened that night. And it is, you know, it's humbling, but it's also, you know, it tells me that what we're doing, you know, is absolutely right and important for this time. It is necessary. So I'm grateful for all of the folks who have subscribed and, and you know, who understand what this journey is. It's not about likes. You know, we're not in it for the likes. We're in it for this to be open and to free some people who uh, have been in bondage, including me. You know, like I'm I'm in class with a notebook and notepad and you are opening my imagination about me what too. the possibilities are. So thank you for okay. subscribing. Let, let me say this to you as well. What you're doing for all of us, myself included, everybody was saying, wow, I didn't know about that. I'm gonna get this book. I'm gonna go ahead and write and get support in our black institution. What you're doing for me, what you're doing for what we're what we're doing to each for each other, we're doing with each other. In other words, what you all see is that when when we talk, this sends me back. I spent a great deal of the last twenty. I spent the last twenty years at Howard, and anyone who teaches, if you're teaching, I'm not talking about if you get a job and they call you professor, as Doctor uh, Professor Hunter and I both know what that means. This between a teacher and somebody who's on a faculty, who's on sabbatical every other year, or who has a graduate seminar with six students, and then the TAs teach all the other classes. So no, we're teachers. So what this is doing is pulling me out of a rhythm that I found myself in because, and I'm not unique. This is what black institutions end up doing. They end up, we are needed to help inspire, encourage, help guide, generations but when you do that over and over and over again and now this pandemic hit what what professor hunter is telling y'all well she's telling me what i've seen with you and i want to thank you for this sis is we're not going back to that rhythm and now everything we're talking about now which would normally be in a classroom with maybe 100 students or 30 students or at most you know 700 students in a seminar freshman seminar everyone we're not going. We we going. We we're going to be free now. You decide we're going to be free, and we're going to do it together. That's not what the university, black, white, or polka dot, is set up to do. So just so you know, you like, it's set up for that, up for that scrilla. It's set up for that money. It's set up for those. Yeah, that's what it's set up for. For profit, profit, which is what we've always been. For this, yeah, we've always been a source of profit. Now it's time for us to profit ourselves. All right, I want to again thank the people who've uh, come in and want to ask a question. This is exciting. Uh, let's welcome in Tasha from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Fort Wayne. Tasha in here. Hey, Tasha. Hey, Tasha. Period. <laughs> it's it's an honor. It really is. Um, Dr. Carr wanted to ask about the Philadelphia curriculum. And what pushback or how difficult was that to implement? I look at something like the 1619 Project and all of the pushback it's gotten. Um, so it just seems like that would have been something very difficult to do. Can you speak on that, please? Absolutely. First, let me ask you, Tasha. Thank you for that question. Uh, you uh, born and raised Fort Wayne? Yes. Okay. So then you know something about that history of organizing and organized labor. That's a... Uh, Folks, uh, where, where'd your people come from before then? Or do you... Mississippi. Yeah, it is. What are you talking it's... about, like the 1940s, 50s? Yes. Okay, so that's so. So you one of those uh, grandchildren of, uh, of A. Philip Randolph then, when they opened up those war industry jobs. Yeah, because that's where uh, that's where the uh, the Pistons came from, right? Yeah. Detroit Pistons, Fort Wayne. Fort yeah. Wayne. Working in those factories. No, yeah. but, but you know what I'm saying? So that, oh, that's beautiful. Natasha, I would just say very quickly that 
one thing that I think all teachers know is that a curriculum is only as good as what happens in the classroom. And what, what I learned over the last 30 years, and certainly since we did the Philadelphia curriculum, basically 2005 to 2007, the first thing we did in Philadelphia was we went back and tried to find every curriculum, every lesson plan, everything we could find that had been done by teachers in the city of Philadelphia before us. Some of that stuff went back decades. I mean, 50 years before before even the students walked out of the high schools in Philadelphia and demanded black studies in 1967 and got beat up by the police. And then after that, they set up an office and we found all this curriculum work. So what it means is we've, we've got some incredible curriculum. Carl G. Woodson and them been writing curriculum in the Negro History Bulletin since 1937. But what happens is, and there are textbooks actually that go back to the 1840s. 1843, J.W.C. Pennington wrote a textbook for the history of the colored race. Black women wrote these textbooks. There's a lot of that work that has been done. In fact, uh, I wrote about that in my dissertation. I mean, all these textbooks that you see. Um, I got a whole pile of them over there. Karen and I said we're going to do a show on the textbooks. So uh, I got a lot of those textbooks. So, But here's the problem. If you write a curriculum, you write a textbook, how do you get it into the classroom? Textbooks are big business in, in education now. So who gets the contract? And then you get the textbook. Now, how do you get the students to engage the textbook? That's where the teacher comes in. How do you get the students to basically begin to grapple with these ideas and, and complete? Now you're talking about curriculum and instruction. And what we found in Philadelphia finally is that you can have, we, 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 we had, a, we think, a revolutionary curriculum model. We emphasized the right questions to ask and then surrounded it with lesson plans, surrounded with what in education they call planning and scheduling timelines. This is what you do every six weeks, every week. Here's every day. It's flexible for you to drop other things in. Now that we started, you keep adding lessons. They call local, local history, family history. So we, we, we had a beautiful framework. We then did what they call professional development, which I don't like that term. We brought in teachers and workshopped and thought through. We then went in the community at the same time and did work. This is uh, Dana King. Dana King was the director of social studies in the schools of Philadelphia and the director of African-American studies at the time. And a, a trained classroom teacher, a brilliant master teacher, who was also deeply connected and still connected with the Association for the Study of Afro-American Life and History, Carter Woodson's Association. So we did community workshop and workshopping. Now, if the curriculum isn't tied to instruction, in other words, the assessments, in other words, the test, you know, a lot of students, what's going to be on the test? If it's not tied to the test, teachers can take the curriculum and say, fine, but it ain't tied to the test. So this is some interesting stuff. So maybe I'm not going to do it. We were also saying, how can we get prompts for the SAT and the ACT and look at some of this stuff so that it can be driven and the AP classes for the students who take AP classes that are things we ask in the curriculum. That's when you uncover the big wolf. Nicholas Lehman wrote a book called The Big Test, for example, on the history of the education test, test and search. If it's not in instruction, in assessment, instruction can disappear. I often tell students, you know, in many ways, for y'all, assessment drives instruction. So you got to get the, 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 the stuff on the test that's in the curriculum. If you don't, then it's not tied to the credit structure system. And so what you end up seeing is people can ignore it. So they took our curriculum. And after, you know, I'm not there every day because I lived in Philadelphia the first 10 years I taught in Howard. So I'm always, you know, the last 10 years I've been down here. So, you know, or you get a new superintendent or a new administration, they can just add our curriculum to the other 100 curriculum projects. Now, the 1619 project, its approach is basically kind of in some ways the same way 
that the Democratic Party is trying to treat voter stuff. Carpet bomb from a thousand feet up. Now that's a strategy. In other words, saturate the classrooms with curriculum, saturate the classrooms with the documents, create the website, saturate it with have we seen this before? Oh yeah, I remember when Henry Louis Gates was running around the country with Bill Gates and uh, peace and Microsoft in Carter, Africana in Carter. Where is that now? And it's the same place all those things uh, th that start a thousand feet up end up. You can sell it to the school districts through the superintendent and the school boards. You can give it away free to every teacher in the world. And he or she gets the magazine, looks at the students and said, now what's going to be on the tip? That too gets put in the side. Instruction and curriculum instruction is driven from the inside out, not the outside in. And so we have to finally, uh, the battle we have is the battle is difficult, but at the same time, could be disarmingly simple. There are teachers who join us every weekend. Their army of educators who all of us know, I know I know a ton of them, that as we continue to out and connect people, get recruited into this space, and what we found out finally in Philadelphia Freedom Schools, which still goes on, all my young people, shout out to Anshere Hines and all these, I mean, all the folks, uh, uh, Nadira Suleiman, the, the woman who we recruited to help run this 20 years ago, Eric Astakoye, all of them, uh, you know, the, Tammy, uh, these days just turned 50. All these people we had, Aisha Imani, who runs Sankofa Freedom Academy, K-12 school. What we found is when you bring young people in community and start asking these questions and surrounding them with texts and we all apply our critical intelligence and then they convert it into whatever medium of communication they're doing at the moment. They then take that back into the schools and it begins to then force the transformation from the inside out. And so whatever the assessment is, they find, I thought I hated history, but now I see where I fit in it. So give me the hundred item test that you got with your questions. I can answer all those, but I'm answering them now in relation to who I am. And you see the test scores and the performance go up. But that's not a fight that we start by going and arguing with policymakers. That's a fight we start by doing whatever the hell we want to do. And then it infects those places. Another thing is you recruit then people who will not stand for the status quo anymore. So yes, I don't spend any time arguing with, with people who say black children can't do. Too busy with black children doing. It's a different mentality. And that's the one that goes all the way back to the segregated schools, as far as I'm concerned. The best stuff in the segregated schools, anyway. And Michael Harriet, um, in our conversation with him, really underscored how powerful it is when, when we engage with our, our kids, what his mother did with uh, he and his sisters, and then put them in school. And he was light years ahead of everybody because they taught, she taught them how to think about themselves in the midst of everything else around them. And this goes to, I'm gonna get Barry in in a second, but somebody named Barry, Barry Davis wanted to know how do we get access to freedom schools for our teens in Los Angeles? They need this information too. So, you know, I know that's Marion Wright Edelman's um, project, right? Uh, she well, started well, freedom schools? We started with them. Okay. And we, oh boy, <laughs> yes, we, okay. Let me get my saying thing, because I ain't going to go fast. I, mean, I ain't going to do a whole lot about this. This is a Philadelphia Freedom School started in 1999 as a partnership with the School District of Philadelphia and the Children's Defense Fund Freedom Schools. Absolutely. And they have a, an incredible Freedom Schools, National Freedom Schools model. Um, we were a school district partner. We had seven Freedom Schools the first year, 14 the second year, 21 the third year, because we had somebody who was a superintendent of schools, a dude named David Hornbeck who was on the CDF board, absolutely committed to radical education. 
Ultimately, the funding dried up. And so we, by then, however, we had been able to push through leadership of Aisha Imani, Sankofa Freedom Academy, which is a K-12 freedom school, public freedom pu public school in Philadelphia. But we, after several years, kind of re uh, reconfigured our relationship with the Children's Defense Fund because the curriculum we designed was not only Philadelphia specific, we rewrote the whole curriculum from the ground up because CDF's curriculum, very heavy on literacy, helping students fall in love with reading, we agree. Very heavy with the question of black history and culture, we agree. But we were also, many of us were working for the school district and we said we want to do more. So our curriculum, you know, the books that we talk about, a lot of the books we talk about, we had high school students reading those books. Why? Because, well, you know, students, no, 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 we don't have any limits. Just like uh, you said, uh, just like you said, Professor Hunter, just like you said, Karen, Mike Harriet is the example. What his mother did, him and his sisters, his siblings, that is the example. We don't have a limit. And what we saw is the students exceeded it. So, you know, Philadelphia Freedom Schools became Philadelphia Freedom Schools. It's no longer affiliated to Children's Defense uh, although a lot of people in CDF, of course, all, we're all family, for sure. Uh, and now we work, uh, we're, we're under the auspices and the umbrella of the Center for Black Educated Development. Uh, uh, a good brother, Sharif El-Mekki, who's a prince, former principal, classroom teacher in Philadelphia. His mother's educated. She just made transition, I say. And so it's very grounded. And finally, we grounded Philadelphia Freedom Schools in the local uh, tradition of black education. So John Churchville and the Northern Student Movement, it connects back to SNCC. They had the Freedom Day School. If you ever see Bill Cosby's documentary, Black History Lost, Stolen, or Strayed, those early scenes in those classrooms, those are Philadelphia classrooms in 1960s and 70s, Bill Cosby's hometown. And it's the Freedom Day School. You see John Churchville, who's still alive. In L.A., I would encourage uh, tapping into the local tradition, and then we'd be in contact. We'll work together. The long history of African-centered education in Los Angeles, Anyam Paul. Um, uh, the Marcus Garvey School. I remember going to LA and those kids got up one time and sang a rendition of Ooh Child that made all brought all of us to tears. That was about 20 years ago. No, it was the same year as the earthquake in Northridge. It was in 94, I think it was. So like 26 years ago. I mean, but there's a long tradition of that in Los Angeles and people doing that work there. So let's talk some more because this, this, this form we have now that Karen has created when we have this conversation, it also allows us to network. That's the other lesson. No need to reinvent the wheel. We need to compare. It's been my experience that great curriculum has been written all over by master teachers, many of whom we don't know because they use it in their classroom. And that was the foundation for the Barbara Sizemores in D.C. and Chicago and Anderson Thompson's for the Portland Baseline essays out there in Portland that people tried to trash. That is the foundation for what came out of New York make it one thing but it was another thing this is the foundation of what asa hilliard did all over the country get the book that he's got a chapter in young gifted and black the last chapter no mystery how to close the gap between african children and excellence and he'll give you a list of these people who are doing that work so that's the point this is the point of departure for us to talk and and you know um again what makes you a teacher michael harriet's mother wasn't a teacher you have children like you know this is the opportunity for you to do something different. If there's nothing in your area, be the one to create it. Be the one. Books and conversation and question asking. It's a very simple model. Um, and the goal is to get kids to want to learn on their own. All right, I'm gonna 
Welcome. Thank you for that uh, question, too. Let me get yes. Barry in. Barry is from uh, the great state of Nebraska, Omaha, the home okay. of the birthplace of, who is that, Malcolm X? Malcolm X and Bob Gibson. We talked about him about a month ago. There we go. You see, we out here repping. He's at the spot. I'm standing on the spot, baby. Don't worry about it. Tell us That's all, it. Barry, tell us where you are, brother. Tell the whole I'm nation. Standing at the birth site of Malcolm X uh, here in Omaha, Nebraska. As I heard his name kept coming up earlier in the conversation, I said, I'm going to do him one better. I'm going to go ahead and drive down the street and stand on the spot where the legend was born. So here we are at the birth site of Malcolm X in Omaha, Nebraska. God bless you, man. The ancestors protect you, brother. Wait a minute. Are you one of those sons of blood and thunder? I see that. See, hey, yes, coming up. Hey, Tuesday. Tuesday, we celebrating. We celebrating Founders Day. I got to make sure I represent for Omega Sci-Fi. So Happy you see that as well. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Had Malcolm ended up in college, I suspect he probably would have played you. <laughs> I, I would. Hey, I would only imagine. I would only imagine. I love it. Thank you so much, Barry, just for being there, brother. I and mean, you, y'all, your family goes way back in Omaha, or y'all recent? Yeah, my family. My mother was born. Actually, my mother was born like two blocks down from the birth side of Malcolm X. Uh, not too far from where. Yeah. So, yeah, my family's been here since the 1940s. Uh, my grandfather moved here during the Great Migration after the service. And uh, my grandmother moved here with the uh, packing houses as well. So, uh, yeah, that, that was it. You talk about Fort Wayne and, and their, their migration. My, my people came. My grandmother came from uh, North Carolina. My grandfather came up here from Tennessee, from your, from your neck of the woods. Oh, my God. Hey, man, it's crazy. We talking about eight for the red. Uh, you saw you're another exactly. uh, grandchild of the March on Washington movement. Exactly. Exactly. So what's going on, bro? Yeah, talk. All right, yeah. So, so my question, and so you, uh, it's it's so crazy. Y'all always talk about the ancestors and how that spirit just kind of guides the conversation. And so I actually had typed my stuff out last night, um, but but um, it's you you've already kind of hit on so much of what I wanted you to hit on and what I was going to ask because you drop these Easter eggs. Uh, you you and Professor Hunter drop these Easter eggs every single week. And so a couple weeks back, you had talked about. Um, you had talked about Coppin Springs quickly. You had brought up Coppin Springs and you had brought up Mohunk very quickly, right? And so I was like, well, what is that, right? So I'm also, I just need you, you know, I'm an adjunct professor. Uh, I just am finishing my first semester at the University of Nebraska, Omaha up here. And so oh, I'm, teaching yeah. a class, I'm teaching a class around black education. And so when you brought those two up, I stopped and I was like, man, what is this that he was talking? So I went and did some research and- You found out, did you see that? Mind blown, right? And so I guess so my question was, so all the work that was being done behind those closed doors in those private meetings, um, there's got to be a counter narrative, right? And so you've already kind of spoken to what, what Black folks were doing to, to develop our own curriculum. And even as y'all was talking last week about Michael Harriet, it all kind of tied into what my spirit has been kind of stirring on too. And so I, I guess my question to you is, because this is what I actually am bringing to my class next week when we meet is like, so the I've already talked to them about those secret meetings, right, or those those private meetings, and then even Professor Hunter had somebody on earlier this week on our radio program that was talking about uh, the the black conferences that were taking place during the 1800s, right? Yes. How the organizing of black folks was taking place during that time, but we don't know anything about those. Yeah, real form. Yes. yes. And so tying that together, were there also black education? meetings, curriculum, like what was being done in the early 1900s from the black side to respond to a Coppin Springs or a Mohawk or all those different types of uh, curriculum 
structures that kind of le limited our capabilities um, by defining what we were capable of understanding. What was going on with black folks to counter that at that time period? That, that's that's my question. Barry, let me ask you right quick too, bro. What's the name of the course you teach? The Survey of Black Education. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. What, what you use? I've been all up in your syllabus, so you got a class oh. similar. So I, I done downloaded your syllabus. I've been looking at your bibliography. Good, so yeah, so I'm all there with you. Because good, because because I don't know. Um, what what do they have a, a common book? Are you you some readings for them? How no. you? I got, I've got a, a miseducation of Negro. I'm going all. I'm going from early on. I got some of the boys in there. I had them pick up. Um, I had them pick up. Uh, Why all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? So we're going all the way through the kind of. But but really, the philosophy behind it is I'm not so, so I'm not so concerned about the schools as I'm worried about education because as we talk about epistemology, as we yes. talk about African ideas and ways of being and ways of knowing, which I picked up from your Philadelphia <laughs> yeah, curriculum. That's well, one of the categories, yes sir. Right, right. And so uh, as we talk about that, that's really what I want what my, my students to explore because as y'all were just saying before I came home, everybody's a teacher. Everybody's Everybody. And so when we start talking about education, I want to make sure we think about epistemology as opposed yes. to the, the four walls of a brick and mortar school. Yes. What are we being taught? What are we learning? Wow. Brother, let me just say this very quickly. Uh, first of all, I'm glad you got your frat brother in the rotation, the great Carter Woodson. If it Absolutely. hadn't been for the Omegas, we wouldn't have Black History Month. People don't know. <laughs> y'all made Woodson a cue, and he said, okay, I'm in, but now I got something I want y'all to do. And Omega mm -hmm. Sign 5 spread Negro History Week at 1923. So I'm glad you got him. Um, so you know then, of course, that whole Cape and Springs and Lake Mohawk, that's the conversation that uh, Brother James Anderson does in his book, The Education of Blacks in the South. He has a whole chapter is really on how they plan it and then how we fought back. Also, a brother who's an ancestor, William Watkins. I don't know if you know his book, um, The, the White Architects of Black Education. Mm. He really takes that in that book, the Teachers College Press, Columbia University Press, you get it. He, he walks through all those meetings, but also our responses. And then finally, well, two, two, two final things. In fact, I'll say the most important one first. Since Omaha had the biggest group of black people, really, uh, west of the Mississippi to L.A., and then it was Omaha and L.A., I have no doubt that the Black Teachers Associations there and the networks of Black teachers in segregated schools have histories and have memories that if there's some of those elders still around, people need to interview. So like a place like Nebraska, Omaha, for example, and my good friend and big brother, um, James Conyers, Dr. James Conyers, now University of Houston, he started at Nebraska, Omaha. Um, Jasmine Watkins, you know, a few people who are out there. University of Nebraska, Omaha. You know, I love those people, man. My fam. But there are long-standing Black educators in there. Seems to me, and this is something for everybody, you know, to get young people in particular to interview elders and start finding out their stories. Like when in this semester, when I was the education of Blacks in the South, I'm teaching education of Black America this semester. And one of my students, we start talking about the Rosenwald schools. And I say, you know, you should talk to the elders. One of the sisters is in Durham, uh, North Carolina. And she, no, Charlotte. She talked to her grandmother, found out her grandmother went to one of the Rosenwald schools. They got in the car and went by the school. Don't you know, a couple of days later, that school mysteriously set on fire, burned down. But she was able to capture that memory with her grandmother in that space in the middle of a pandemic because they're all living together, quarantined together. Um, the other thing I would say, is that's the that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, this is Thelma Perry's book, 
a history of the American Teachers Association. This was the black teachers during the segregated schools. You've heard me talk about it before. And there are a number of those. Uh, here's the history of the Alabama State Teachers Association. Here's the one Mike Harriet and, and, and Professor Hunter and I were talking about, history of Palmetto, that's South Carolina. Uh, but the book that you can get, those books are out of print, but the book that you can get, I don't know if I can put my hands on it right now. I may not have it around here where I can. There's a book by Vanessa Siddle, S-I-D-D-L-E, Walker. I've never met Professor Walker. I've exchanged emails with her uh, a couple of times. Uh, this sister, she wrote a book called The Lost Education of Horace Tate, T-A-T-E. Um, very important book. Came out a couple of years ago. Uh, she's a professor at Emory University, but she grew up in the segregated school. She's written a couple of other books about the segregated schools in North Carolina. I love the way this sister writes and thinks because her devotion to helping us see a blueprint for recovering these models of black education that we can then add to and continue to build on because it's because it's uninterrupted. The teachers have been doing it everywhere. Um, and oh, I see you, Yolanda. Yeah, let's talk. No question. Alabama Child Policy Training Institute, CDF in New York. Yeah, Jeff Canada, Harlem Children's Zone. No question. Absolutely. We used to meet up with them cats every summer. And we still, you know, still we still ride with those folks. So so uh, the, I, I would end with this, with the lost education of Horace Tate on this on this question and observation, really. This is what I love. We're really sharing information. Um, and thank you again, brother, for bringing that Malcolm in this, into play, brother. Is a book like The Lost Education of Horace Tate gives us a blueprint for how we can begin to recover the narrative of these heroes, largely black women, who during the era of segregation and then after desegregation, continue to educate, continue to educate. And just like Mike, uh, Michael Harriet was in vacation Bible school, Sunday school, we find that this education, as we just heard, is not just about the school building. It's about education. And that education, uh, I would encourage everybody at your churches. Yeah, some of y'all already know this history, but if you haven't thought about it, record the history of education in the in the community centers. Find those elders everywhere. And this is the perfect time to do it because we're quarantined. Call them up, get them on a Zoom, record the conversation, share it. Let's recover our memory of education while we have this opportunity. And these elders are waiting for us to ask questions that when they answer them, we have the blueprint. And then we're not looking like, somebody from the social structure decides to drop a whole curriculum that somebody spent half a million dollars on. No, we're good. Oh, I should say one other thing. Check out the Negro History Bulletin. It's now called the Black History Bulletin, but check out the Negro History Bulletin, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, beginning in 1937. If you search that out, go online, see if you can get access to a public library that, that subscribes to the databases where you can start looking at them. Uh, maybe that's something, Karen, we can do, too, is, is work on every issue, lesson plans, short essays written by many of them by school teachers, some by school children from the 1930s forward. And, a whole, and many of them are based on local histories that chapters of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, Woodson's Association, would send in to the Negro History Bulletin. So when you read the Negro History Bulletins, you're really getting, in addition to everything else, you're getting local histories. You might find your city or town or part of the country in the Negro History Bulletin from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way up through. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, this is the blueprint on so many levels. You know, you have a brilliant person and you ask them questions. No, no. <laughs> and I'm, you said 
That's yeah, it. That was you just, sit back. you just sit back and that's it. You just do this and you go, go. Here's a question, and you just let them go. No. We all <laughs> in our lives. We need to we need to do more of this. Yes. Wow. Thank right. you so much. That oh, I'm so that. Let me say thank you to you. Um, thank you to everybody that participated in this. Uh, this was an experiment today. I liked it, it worked well. I think thank I you well for this question. This is a genius over here, y'all know. Right? No, point, point, point. We're gonna point. Right. Oh my god, love you. Uh, and I, everybody that was here, a couple thousand, three thousand by the end of this, would be fifty, hundred thousand people who watched this. I appreciate you. Thank you for getting us to a hundred thousand. Now we need to get to a million because that will, uh, we won't need anyone. Then we can do anything. Ooh, watch out now. Let's do this quick. Yes, yes. More to come. Uh, we'll see y'all next week. We got a game plan. I appreciate you, Dr. Carr. Listen, get some rest. Uh, yes, get some rest. Not, not to go down there? No, don't go down there. Okay. You don't need to go down there. Don't go to DC. You don't need I'm to bet. go to DC. Nobody should go to DC. It should be 10 people with tiki torches and let them just be there in a circle by themselves with their clan leader. And uh, let us continue to do what we do, which is to build and work and grow the thing that we want to see happen, because that's what this is about. Sage advice, sis. You just gave us the word. That's, we should apply that to everything. Thank you. On that right. note, see y'all next week. Love you. Love you.